to episode 11 of the Game Pit. In this episode, we'll be reviewing 2012. Ronan? Yeah, the last couple of years, I've done a geek list in which I've gone through the top 20 games from the year before, and I've always done it about this time, give us a few months to play as many of the games as possible. And also, I mentioned the one game that I found was the biggest disappointment. So that's not necessarily the game I thought was the worst, because... That'd be pretty easy. You can go and buy a terrible game. There's hundreds of them. But the game that I had high expectations for that didn't quite live up to it. So we're going to go through this list of 21 games. We're going to chat about them. Sean's going to give his opinions. I'm going to give my opinions. Obviously, they're generally going to be positive because 20 of them are the 20 best games I played that were released last year. You can catch all our episodes along with a whole host of other gaming goodness at 2d6.org. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about these 21 games and we're going to be trying to find positives and negatives of them and, and kind of compare them to some other games we've played and, and just give a general overview. We're not going to spend too long on each one and a lot of them we're going to have covered in previous episodes. We're going to start on a bit of a sour note and that's my Hall of Shame entrant for 2012. The game which I expected something off and I'm afraid it didn't deliver. And this one's going to go to Archipelago, which is by Christoph Bollinger um, from Asthma Day. Uh, two to five players. It's, it's quite a long game. You're talking probably two hours or so. Now, I don't want to spend too long ragging on any game. This game looks beautiful, looks fantastic, has got a lovely idea to it. Before Essen, I was quite excited to have a look at it and see how it played. And then when I read the rules, I felt there's something in there. There's a few things in there that really I didn't didn't sit well with me. I did manage to play it about a month after it came out, after Essen, I played it a couple of times, back end of last year. And there are some really good bits to it, and then there's some things that I find very frustrating. And those are the sort of games that are going to end up going in my hall of shame, because just rubbish games, that they're ten a penny, you're going to find loads of them. But the games that are so close, but, but just don't do it, they find them more frustrating. Specifically, I find with Archipelago. The scoring is hidden. It's a tight Euro game where you're trying to make your actions efficient and yet you don't know what's going to score. Every player has got their own individual thing that tells them a certain something's going to score. Now those certain somethings affect everyone but you only know your own. I find that really, really frustrating especially in this kind of Euro style of a game. If it was in a more thematic, loose, randomy like game where you're all having a bit of a laugh and a bit of fun, I can understand but this isn't that. This is a real thinky. You have to plan everything and, and get an engine going but I could be getting an engine going in one direction and it's going to score me zero points at the end of the game and I just don't get on with that at all the second thing I find annoying is that you don't know when the game's going to end there are different end conditions and they're hidden and, and as soon as one of them's triggered it gets flipped over and someone goes oh by the way that's an end condition and you didn't know it was going to happen and the third one is that it's kind of co-op-y but in a real weird way and I, I hate that I, I hate co-ops that aren't really co-ops Traitor mechanic games are different, but this is kind of somewhere in the middle. Now, as part of the game, you have to keep the native population happy. Most of you do, but there's a chance that one of you actually wins if there's an insurrection and the natives uprise. Now, you have to co-op together and you have to spend really valuable, precious resources in order to keep the natives happy. But you don't know whether everyone's going to be in. And it's real easy to make a deal with everyone and go, well, I'll spend three of these, you spend three of these, you spend three of those. And then one of them just go, no, I'm not going to spend it. 
And without their help, suddenly everything becomes more expensive for the other players. So they don't have to pay that expense because if you don't keep the natives down, they're going to win. So they've got an advantage because they're not having to spend these extra resources because they don't care. They can hoard the resources and win on points or they can win via the uprising. And those three things together just really grated on me. I just didn't enjoy this game. Sean, have you got any thoughts on Archipelago? Well, Ronan, this is the only game on your list that I haven't actually played. Now, I've seen it being played, and I know a lot about it because I was very, like you, very excited about this one before it came out. I have to agree with you in the terms that it looks absolutely amazing. The quality of production is, is beautiful on this. And I get where you're coming from. I, having everything hidden so you don't know when that game is going to end. So you can build up a strategy that's going to last you 10 turns. But that game could end on your ninth turn, and that strategy is out the window. And I totally get that. Now, there is a variant that everyone flips over their cards so you know what everybody's striding towards. And obviously, the person with the native population card, if they take over, or the rebels, or whatever they're called, then that's taken out of the game. But I'm with Ronan on this in terms of you shouldn't have to fix the game. A game this involving and the longer game can go three hours plus easily and to have that game just cut short without anybody knowing it apart from the person who has finished their set of tasks or got to their end condition it leaves you a little bit cold and i've seen it happen i've seen people's faces drop when that card is turned over and someone says i've won because i've finished and this is my end of game condition so yeah i i do agree with ronan on this one to a large extent it's one of those where if it happened in a quick one-hour thematic game, you wouldn't be bothered so much. But these kind of games are yours. You have to invest in them. You have to be really trying and thinking. I, I just find like, oh, I've wasted my time, man. Why did I care so much? When it's just, ah, oh, I don't know what's happening. So There's so much going on in the game as well. And you can just get lost in it. You can get really invested in what you're doing, whether you're going off exploring or trying to buy allies or trying to influence the markets in certain ways. And to do all that and then the game just end and there's nothing you can do about it it's not a great mechanic yeah so we'll leave it there let's not go on for too long but very frustrating experience i had i'm sorry everyone involved but archipelago in you go into the hall of shame let's go on to more positive things sean my number 20 now this is for timeline timeline is a set of games it's come out in a big pack now in the uk they're originally in tins there's about four different varieties that I know of. It's a simple card game. It's from Frederick Henri, uh, again, by Asmodee. So Asmodee, I didn't like Archipelago, but I like Timeline. This is good. It's for two to eight players. I think it originally came out 2010 in France. But as far as I know, in the UK, it came out 2012. Certainly, that's, that's when I first saw it. And I'm going to go with it. It is a 2012 game. It's for two to eight players. You definitely need at least two. I mean, you can play with as many as you like, really. And the way it plays is... Whichever deck you're using, you have a set of cards. On one side is the name of whatever is pictured on there. Now, I'm going to go with the Inventions deck, because that's the one I play with most often. It's the one Sean and I have played with most often. And that's going to show a set of inventions or discoveries, what have you. Maybe they the the ballpoint pen or microscope or the rabies vaccine or a wheel or cannons, crossbows, whatever it might be. And on the front on one side, it's just a picture of it and the name. On the back side, it's going to be the year which that was discovered, invented, came into human knowledge, however you want to say it. 
depending on the number of players, you're going to get a set of cards each, and you're only going to be able to look at the front. You're not going to be able to look at the back and see what date that they were discovered. And then one card gets placed in the middle, and that's the start of the timeline, and that does get flipped, and you see what year. So let's say it was the year we discovered Uranus, which was whatever it was. The first player to play then places their card face up to the left or the right of that card, and they are making a choice there. That card, whatever is on there, Let's take one, Mount Rushmore. They're going to say Mount Rushmore was invented, which just seems weird, but okay, discovered, made, created after we discovered Uranus. And then they flip it, and if they're correct, it stays there. If they're incorrect, it comes out of the timeline, and they draw another card. Every player, in turn, is going to get a chance to place their card, and you choose where it goes in the timeline. It doesn't have to be at one end or the other. It can go in between cards. And you're trying to be the first to get rid of all your cards. Now, it happens on a turn, so don't worry. First player hasn't got a huge advantage, although maybe it's slightly easier in that they have less cards to go into. But it's on a turn. If one person gets rid of all their cards and no one else has, they win the game. If it happens that more than one player gets rid of their cards, you go into a tiebreak situation where it's sudden death. And that's the whole game. It sounds really simple. It is really simple. You're talking a 15-minute game here, but I like it. I like that it plays quickly. I like that it's interactive because as you're playing things, you're going to be chatting to each other and someone puts a card down and commits, there's going to be oohs and ahs and no ways and yeah and reallys and you flip it and there's all chat about it and going, no, I didn't realise that was that early or that late or Sean, can you believe the crossbow came around that early? I'm pretty sure you lost the last game on crossbow, right? Yeah, let's not go there. Okay. Anyway, this game, is it a game? Is it a children's history quiz? Is it a school project? I don't know. It doesn't feel like a game to me. It just feels like an exercise. A fun exercise. Don't get me wrong. There is fun in this, but it just feels like something you do at school. It doesn't feel like a game. It's a good way for everybody to learn about history and especially timings of history and dates and what came first. But is it really a game? Uh, I mean, I actually one of the things that I wrote down here is quiz. It's one of the words from, from my, in my notes. It is like a bit of a quiz, but it's interesting. It's it's strangely fascinating because it's all things in there that you think you should know or you should be able to work out. And it's almost funny when you're completely wrong. And then obviously there's the smug bit when you're completely right. You go, oh, yeah, of course I knew that that was exactly one year right either side. Of course you didn't. But I believe in judging games by their merits. Okay, These 20 games are not going to be the deepest, most involved, all four-hour-long games. You have to go, you know, a four-hour game has to be better than a 10-minute game. It's not true. This is a great 15 minutes of fun. And that's it. And the replayability is not fantastic, but actually, because there's so many of them and they're quite hard to remember, it, it is there. You're going to get quite a few plays out of it. There's over 100 cards in each set. I wish I could get hold of some more sets. Uh, I've only played with two of the four. More would be fantastic. But again, one of the mindsets I've put down is, is it too simple? It's not the type of game we will usually sit down and play, but I see that as a positive. It's something a bit different, a bit fun. You get it out. People look at it and they're a bit like, what? What's, what are you trying to put on me here? But when they start playing, generally they start having fun. I'm not saying that this isn't fun. I'm not for one minute, but in the context of what we're doing here, this is your top 20. And fair enough, it's your top 20, but I wouldn't have this anywhere close to a top 50 if I was doing one. I just don't feel like there's enough to it. And I'm all for short games. You need your fillers. You can't be playing two, three-hour epics all the time. Absolutely. You do need your fillers. And this isn't bad. It gives you a little bit of fun. But again, it just felt more like a learning exercise, almost like flashcards for babies. Which is about the level I was trying to pitch to you at. 
Anyway, <laughs> my number 20 is Timeline. Number 19 is from designer Richard Breeze and Sebastian Bleasdale. Came out last year from uh, a whole bunch of people, but let's say, is it Hook? Hook and Friends? Hooch and Friends? It's Keyflower. Anyway, uh, it's for two to six players. It's a good meaty game. You're talking, I guess, between an hour and a half, two hours, depending on how many players you've got going on. Um, came out again last year at Essen. It's themed on the key flower thing. I think that name threw a lot of people off, especially when it was coming out and there wasn't that much information. It's it's kind of a play on Mayflower. It's about colonising a continent from the old world, you know, new world, old world, America, what have you, uh, building up colonies over there. And the way it works is there's going to be ships coming over with people on and there's going to be areas of development available. And between all the players, there's going to be auctions using meeples. Meeples are the currency in the game. They both work as workers to use facilities that have been built and they also work as a currency in order to get the new facilities that are coming in and to, and to win the bids on things. And it's really an interesting game in that it blends quite a few different mechanics together. It's got a real cool auction mechanic. When you're bidding on things, either to use them or to, to purchase them, and when I say things, I mean tiles. You, you're taking tiles generally and, and building up your own little town. And yet, while well, I say it's your own little town, actually the tiles in everyone else's towns are available to you to use. Um, and this is all done by use of, there's meeples in four different colours. Now the basic ones are yellow, red, blue, which everyone's going to be able to get, and they're going to be coming in on the ships to restock yourself every turn you're going to get a certain number if people use their meeples in your town you get to keep those meeples but also i think sean wants to talk about it there's a special green meeple in there there's a few of them which which is quite interesting and what happens is if when you open the bidding on a tile to use it or, or purchase it in a color the bidding must stay in that color so if i bid two yellow meeples for a tile then anyone who wants to up that has to bid three or more yellow meeples which is why the rare green ones are interesting because if you place a green on a tile then it's very difficult for someone else to outbid you because there's not many of them in the game. The way that works is, is really very clever. Also, there's a lot of strategic room because the different tiles do lots of different things. I mean, it kind of sounds obvious and without going on for ages it's going to be hard to, to explain but they, there's all kinds of different ways of doing things and then the, the tiles that produce resources often you've got to move those resources around so there's a spatial aspect as well and the tiles only fit together with certain roads and the way you've put them together makes a big difference so that's all real interesting stuff as well it's um very thinky very euro-y i don't think you can really plan a perfect game in it because there's so much interaction with the auctions and other people using your tiles and and it's great in that way and it has got this planning trying to build an engine together but you, you can't be perfect you're not going to be able to see everything and plan everything and and every game is going to be different because of what's coming out and how people are acting i think with regards to how it looks there's, there's pluses and minuses with it i think it looks really pretty it's a really nice looking game but it's not that functional because as i was saying everyone else can use each other's settlements so you have to know what everyone else has got and the tiles are not that distinctive in what they do but they do look lovely so it's kind of a plus and a minus there and, and i think that leads on to the other minus i have with it is that you have to know everyone else's building so you have to see what everyone else has got and it can be a lot to think about in all games where you really have to know what everyone else is building i always find it a bit of an issue i think that's one of my limitations in that I, it's hard I, it's hard enough for me to remember what i've made never mind what you've made sean what are your thoughts on keyflower one word that kind of stands out for me in, in, when talking about Keyflout is refreshing. It brings just new ideas to the plate, and there's so few games that do that now. One thing I want to talk about definitely is the player screens. 
They are so cool. <laughs> <laughs> they are fantastic. Our little huts and you hide your little meeples in behind them. That's the thing that made me finally look at this game because it just didn't stand out. The box is quite bland. It doesn't stand out. I didn't really know a lot about it until I think it was the Games Expo. I was walking past and I saw these little player screens. I was like, they are cool. They what had, is they this had game? The, real, the mini expansion come out at the Games Expo, didn't they? That's right, yeah. And that's the first time I actually took notice of this game. But when you actually start looking at it and playing it, it's just so different and so refreshing. There's a very interesting take on the worker placement, and I love the flow of the workers. Like, if you place it on somebody else's, you're going to lose that worker, and they're going to get it. So you've got to be really careful what you place on. Even if you need that, can you really afford to give that person an extra three workers or extra two workers? And as Ronan said, the green workers is another interesting take on the worker placement because you've got to work to get those green workers. They're not yours to start with. You've got to get the get the cards or get the tiles that give you those workers. But once you've got the green workers, unless anybody else has gone done the same thing and they're after the same card as you, puts you in a really strong position to bid for those tiles. So that's another new thing that I like. I like the fact that you've got to build up your own little island as well. So there's so much going on, but it all works and it all fits into the game. And it's all new takes on stuff that's already out there. So definitely the biggest surprise of 2012 for me was Keyflower. Yeah, I mean, it's sitting at number 19. To be honest, it's probably only that low because I haven't played it much. It's the least played game in the top 20. I've only played it a couple of times. So I think with more plays, it's, it'll probably find itself shooting off uh I, I think, and I also think it's a game that, that will be rewarded with repeat plays because as you learn it, it'll become more intuitive and other people's plays will, will make, start making more sense and what have you. So, Keyflower, I really enjoyed it so far and I hope we get a chance to play it some more. Definitely. It's, it's a game that I really want to play lots more and, as you said, the, the possibilities in this game at the moment are boundless. Okay, so moving on to number 18. Now, this is something I thought you'd never hear me say in any of my top 20s. It's a train game, and I don't like train games. I think they're boring. I work with trains all day long. I don't want to be doing them in my free time. <laughs> in real life, they're great, by the way. I love my job, but uh, I, it's hard to find an interesting train game. Rolling Freight has done it. From Kevin G. Nunn, Ape Games, two to five players, another big thinky game. It says 90 minutes on the box. I think that's a bit of a fib. I think you're talking more two and a half, three and a half hours type of a length deep thinky train game you'd think that would equal boring i'm pretty sure a whole bunch of people have been put off just by other train games and therefore don't even want to try this this is a really really good game i will start with the negatives so i'll give you a quick overview on how this one works uh typical train game you've got a map you've got cities and you've got routes and you're going to be trying to build the routes in order to move goods around the map so far so train gaming the routes come up in contracts they come in different eras there's there's abc's or one two three in the game and in terms of the contracts they are available for you to purchase using dice now everyone gets five dice at the start of, actually they don't roll them at the start of turn they roll them at the end of their turn in trying to avoid ap good idea you roll them they're going to give you some combination of colors and then 
the contracts are available depending on what colors you've rolled in in a sort of a market tableau there's also individual special powers available which you can spend your dice on you can spend dice a certain color to complete the contracts you have so if you have previously purchased a red contract and put it on the board now the contracts are a certain length so it might be let's say five cubes long you need to get on there if you roll some reds on your dice you can use those red results in order to put cubes on so that you can actually start using contracts to build tracks so bits of track in your color in order to start shifting around some goods around the uh, the board it's going to be hard to get across how good this is talking about how it works mechanically but it's really very interesting you can build those tracks you can use them to deliver goods two different types of goods there are passengers that want to get there quickly and for some reason there's freight that wants to get there slowly so in the beginning i found that people are, are more constructed in building contracts in order to score points the less contracts you have on the go the more points you get per contract you fulfilled you can have a maximum of three if you've only got one you get almost double the points for doing it if you can just concentrate and focus on one um then towards the end when more of the tracks are built people start moving these goods around more and score more points that way and it's real interesting the way you can do that you're trying to construct routes around and you're trying to move passengers quickly and trying to move freight slowly and using more links but you're trying not to use other people's links because they get points if you use theirs because only a certain number of contracts come up at once you can't just plan a perfect route it's not like tickets a ride where you're just going to go i want to go here, here here and here it's it's very much it's moments of opportunity and thinking yeah that makes sense to put that there and you're you're reading this real big spatial aspect going on but also there are special powers available for purchase with your dice which really i think is interesting you can get extra dice or you can get more efficient at moving freight around or there's all kinds of different stuff you can get and which makes every player different you don't start off different but you certainly develop in a certain way and you have to be aware of how the other players are playing and, and where the opportunities are and like a lot of games if they're not doing it maybe it's going to be worthwhile for you to do it so it is long it has got a crappy theme it's about <laughs> moving things around on a board using trains which lots of people don't like but it's very interesting it all makes sense all the colours link into each other. There is a real interesting graphical design in terms of supply and demand. I don't know if other games have done it, but each city has got two concentric circles. And one circle tells you what sort of thing they have. So whether it be a passenger type or a good type. And, and that's by a colour. And the other colour tells you what they want. And it's so easy to see on the board. You just look at it and go, oh yeah, that has yellow and it wants red. Where's the nearest red? Okay, there. Okay, that wants to go there. No problem. Using the dice, it's not a lot of dice games try and put lots of complicated iconography on there or try and make it kind of too complicated this has got red or blue or yellow or you know, a combination of colors with a slash in the middle going this is either all makes sense it's real easy to pick up like that the graphic design and the mechanics allow you to make interesting decisions you're not wrestling with them the whole time there's stuff like you can save dice in order to move on and have big turns later on. You don't, you're not always constricted. I just find it to be probably the best train game I think I've ever played. Sean, rolling freight. I haven't played this a great deal, but it's definitely won my interest. I'm not 100% sure if I like it or I don't like it, but I'm definitely interested in playing it again. So that's a good thing. This game's kind of got elements of Ticket to Ride with the building routes and Age of Steam when you're fulfilling contract. But I think it's the technology cards, the powers that you get that really lift it above the mundane, normal, bog standard train games for me. It's quite a long game, as Ronan said. There's no way this is 90 minutes. And I do feel... That at the top end of the players, with four or five players, this can be just too long. It could be 
just that little bit too long for what it is. I don't think it's good enough to sustain four or five players. I think three players, it, it works nicely. And that's certainly the number that I've played it with. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it's not good enough. I think it just probably becomes a bit too slow. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, whether there's any difference in that or not. But uh, yeah, it, it definitely is a thinker. It's not one where turns are 10-second turns just have to think and plan things out and what other people do does affect you and what contracts they take affects you and that's good as well because there's a bit of interaction it's definitely one it seems just to have completely slipped under the radar i mean they have brought out a couple of expansions so i guess it's doing well to some degree but if you get a chance to give it a try and it's a hard sell from experience i know that give it a go because rolling freight really a, a very very good game right just before we finish on this one quibble well it's not a quibble i'm downright furious at it that board, why is the scoring track covered in multiple <laughs> areas? That is a lack of functionality. So you've got, say, you know, number 28, and then you've got a four-inch gap where there's a picture of a cup of coffee, and then there's number 29. Uh, it's more, it's not the kind of numbers that it's really hard to look at and, and have it make sense, because you're so used to looking at, seeing that track around and being able to look across and go, yeah, five points difference, three points difference, oh, yeah, yeah. I can, yeah you don't even have to really realise that you're keeping track of the scores. But on this, it's weird. And depending on what map you've got, you've got pictures of different stuff in the way. And then there is the infamous corner where it goes 40, space that is nothing, like exactly the same as the space for a number, but no number in it, and then 41. And what's that? That's a really weird decision to make. Yeah, it's a little bit distracting. It's They're trying to do it as if it is a map on someone's desk and the stuff holding it down or on it and the pen are coming across and stuff. I think, you know, it's an interesting choice. It's, it annoyed the living bejesus out of me, but it's quite interesting. Yeah, that just threw me. It just And I kept looking at it and it probably took a little bit of enjoyment away from, from the game for me because I just kept staring at it. Why is that like that? Somebody oh, shiny thing. Oh, like oh shiny thing. <laughs> Squirrel. Squirrel. <laughs> well, that's number 18, Rolling Freight. Number 17 is going to be another slightly different one. This came out again at Essen. It was the big Hubba release. Now, Hubba, if you don't know, are a massive company generally that make children's games exclusively. And they always come in yellow boxes. So, I don't know. You must have seen them. I hope you have anyway, because they make some fantastic, fun games. This is a kid's game. It was their big release like i say at essen it's called shadow magic it's by kai Hafferkamp. it's for two to four players but do you know what really you can play it with as big a group as you like i've played it with eight or nine of us the family sitting around playing in teams and stuff it, it probably made it more fun to be honest get the kids around with each other trying to work in partnership if you ever tried to make two six-year-olds work as a team it's not that easy anyway how does it work Really, really simple. The game builds itself out of the box. And what you, you get is um, you build up three sides and a roof. And the side that is opposite the open end is, is a screen. It's a white screen, okay? Inside that box, you place a disc with space for eight or nine, I can't remember now, figures. And that disc can spin. You also get a torch and a wooden block to sit the torch on. You have these wooden figures and you have a bunch of tiles that correspond to the wooden figures and you select a certain number depending on how many players to be in the game. What you do is you place all the tiles of the characters that are in the game in front of the box so everyone can see them and it's pictures of them and their shape is quite clear. And then these wooden figures are, they are three-dimensional but they're cut to be 2D silhouettes. So they're just one shape. And what you're going to do is you're going to place them in the spaces around this wheel. You're going to turn all the lights off. You're going to turn on the torch. And you're going to spin the wheel. Now, if you make woo 
noises and try and generally act spooky, that helps a lot. And you're going to spin this wheel round and round. And as the wooden figures go round, the torch is going to light them up. And the shadows, the silhouettes, are going to spin round on that white screen at the front of the box. And when you've done one full rotation, you turn the torch off, you turn the lights back on. And then in order, the players or the teams get to try and guess which tiles were missing. So they just have to choose one tile and say, oh yeah, I don't think Foxman was in it this turn. I'm sure they've got names, I've got no idea what they are. And when they guess, you then show them the wooden figures that you used, and then they can see themselves. Oh, of course he was there, he was there all along. Oh no, no, I didn't notice the rabbit was there, what have you. That's the whole game. <laughs> not deep, not Euroe, not what I usually like to play. But really, really, really fun. One of those games that makes me insanely jealous at Essen about great kids games they have in Germany. Sean, Shadow Magic, is it? What? What is what what why would you why would you push this on some unsuspecting children? I hate memory games. Probably because I haven't got one, but I hate memory games. I just don't see the point in this. It's just style over substance completely. It's Have you met children? <laughs> I have one, but yeah, I, I don't even think there's any longevity in this for kids. I think they'd get bored after a go oh, or two. They love it. They love it. They're always asking for it. It's summer. It, they're never up when it's dark. And they're, can we play it? Can we play it? It's light. It won't work. Standing behind them and going, I love this, Daddy, does not count as them enjoying it. You do realise. You leave me to my own parenting methods. Move on. Move on. <laughs> it's a visually impressive game. It looks beautiful. Um, but it's a memory test with a fantasy theme. That's what it is. It's like the generation game. Well, going to break into the generation game song when i saw it <laughs> it's a sensory experience it's different <laughs> it gives them something to look at and, and it like challenges them and ah oh, it's so much fun they love it you gotta build some theme man you gotta build some atmosphere halloween i played this with my kids and my nieces and my nephew and i made my sister-in-law play it and we were howling with laughter it was hilarious if you say so petal all right buzz killington get the hell out of here <laughs> <laughs> with all due respect to the real buzz killington um that was number 17 shadow magic which is great bah. Okay, onwards and upwards. The best games of 2012, in our opinion, mostly my opinion. And the next one is number 16, Descent Second Edition from Fantasy Flight Games. Daniel Clark, Corey Knizia, Adam Sadler, and Kevin Wilson are listed as the designers. It's for two to five players. It's playing time is 120 minutes, but actually it's a fantasy game. I'm sure lots of people know this, in which one player is going to be the overlord, he's going to be controlling all the uh, monsters and what have you, and generally anything that's adversarial, and everyone else is going to be members of a fantasy party. And in this game, you're going to have certain quests to go on, and the two sides are going to have opposing goals, and whoever gets their goal first is going to win that particular scenario. It says 120 minutes in the box, but it depends what scenario you're playing. There are some scenarios that are 30, 45 minutes, and the, the longer ones, towards the end, where things are getting a bit more deep and bigger maps, they're going to take longer than 120 minutes to play. So that's just a guess. So I've pretty much described the game. It's one of you's running a party. If you've ever read a fantasy novel, you know what that's all about. 
One, you being the Overlord controlling the monsters. The really interesting thing is, it's not just the Overlord's trying to kill the party, and the party are trying to kill all the monsters. There's different goals in every scenario. There's different things, and they're conflicting, but not necessarily directly conflicting. So, for example, the first introductory scenario, the Overlord has a certain number of monsters, and he has to get them across a map. It's a very small map. And the party has to stop them. And you think, what? <laughs> this seems this is a tiny little setup. They got run across. It seems a bit weird. It's really interesting. The fact that it's not direct conflict. It is direct conflict. You're trying to kill each other. But that's not the end goal. That's just the means to the end. It's really a lot, a lot of fun. What to say about Descent? Obviously, this is the second edition from the first massive coffin box edition, which had all loads and loads and loads of expansions. And this one is certainly heading in that direction. The third expansion has been named already, and I think it hasn't been out a year yet. Um, possibly just a year. I opened the box, and I was wowed. Because there's just great pieces in there. There are so many figures, and they look great it got so many tokens there's so many bits and bobs the maps look fantastic this is fantasy flight at their production level best and it's always going to make a great impression when that happens it's a fun game it, you both feel like you can do stuff there's special powers for either side and you both feel like you you can do it a lot of the goals are partial in in how you can do them so for example that that first one the overlord could get one monster off or could get, I don't know how many he gets, but depends on how many players are in the party, but all five off, let's say. And then the party could stop all of them or stop none or stop something. Generally, they're going to stop something in between. And it's all a lot to do with when you're doing the goals, is it worth sacrificing going for the 100% here in order to try and secure the 75%? So shall I sacrifice that monster to get these three off? Or shall we ignore that one and let him go so we can stop these two? You know, I really like that. It's, it's, it's more to think about than just let's roll some dice and see who wins. This difference in this one to the first one was that the first one, you were able to play it in a sequence of adventures into a campaign only through an expansion this all comes out of the box and in fact not only does it come out of the box that you're able to play a campaign in a series of adventures it's really the only way to play it. it's the best way to play it i have not been able to get together a regular group to play this as a campaign properly which i'm desperate to do i really want to get four of us into it and playing and enjoying it and, and really exploring the depth of it because as you achieve your goals you get better rewards and the Players can level up their heroes. I'll talk about that in a sec because the way the heroes work is interesting. And the Overlord gets more powerful powers to use in each adventure. So there's a power creep going on, but it's a balanced power creep. Oh, I'd love to do that. I think it's really interesting. And it's got that RPG feel to it, that D&D, &D, without all the messing around and going to the tavern and all that. It's get in, this is the adventure, let's do it. Like I say, a bit more than other games because of these focus goals. I'm going to mention them again and again because I really think they're a key to the game. It's not just a dice chucker. It's not just who gets lucky with rolling the dice. Each individual character has got special powers, and that's the monsters have got special powers, and the player characters have got special powers. And in fact, it's really interesting that the different characters you choose, straight away, they all have two different directions they can go in. So if you choose a fighter, you can be a knight or a berserker. So with the knight, you're going to have more kind of defensive and healing powers. With the berserker, you're going to have more, obviously, do more power, but probably your armor's not going to be as good. And going forward in the campaign mode, as you level up, Depending upon which of those routes you've chosen, you're going to get powers in that. So you're going to become more and more and more different, not only to the other classes, but to 
characters within your class, and they're not only characters within your class, but then berserkers will have different powers depending on the choices they've made throughout the campaign. I really like that. It does bring a proper RPG feel of development to the game. Some of the things that I think are not so great, there are some fiddly rules. There's the notorious line of sight rule, which makes no sense whatsoever. Go look it up if you're interested. Lunacy, it's not intuitive, but there you go. It is what it is. And obviously, it's FFG. There's lots of bits and bobs. I actually think it's not that bad to teach and run, but it can be intimidating to some people. And... It only really works or shines properly as a campaign, I'm pretty sure. I haven't been able to do a proper campaign, but, you know, I, I feel like there's something missing in these solo plays I'm getting off it. Not solo, but individual plays I'm getting off it with uh, with not linked adventures. And the last problem with it is it's making me want to spend too much money. Yeah, so for me, I think you've said pretty much everything that I would wish to say. The only problem I've got with is the position on your top 20. 16 doesn't do this game justice and i know it's probably again like keyflower because you probably haven't played it as much as you would like to and delved into it but i think this is a wonderful game it's just like it's a slicker more polished more effective in my opinion version of the first edition as ronan's obviously said the production values on this are absolutely stunning it's a stunning game it's lovingly crafted it's a deep, involving, immersive game, but the problem is it's getting it off the shelf. You need to get the same people together to play it regularly, and that's when it's going to come into its own. So, yeah, I'd probably just echoing what Ronan said. Yeah, great game. I mean, yeah, I think if I had been able to play a proper campaign by now, it, it could be right, right up there. I really hope so. And that's probably one of the reasons why it is a little bit lower down because there is that frustration of, oh God, wouldn't that be great? I'm going to be pushing this with the, with the boys to come over from work. I am still going to be pushing it. I've been trying to, to butter them up. Uh, at lunch tomorrow, I'm going to see them. I'm going to try again and try again. We are going to play a descent campaign, Sean. It's going to happen. It's my dream. It's my goal. Every man needs a goal. Woot! You go, girl. <laughs> I am every woman. Number 16, Descent, Journeys in the Dark, 2nd Edition. Okay, another change of tack, and I feel like I'm about to take a verbal kicking from Sean, not for the first time. Number 15, Kakalakan Poker Royal. What the hell is Kakalakan Poker Royal? It's from Jacques Zime. It's from Dry Magier Spieler. Act 3 was a games, I guess. I don't know. I've got a load of their games. I should find that out. It's for two to six players. I think... If you're playing with less than four, probably even less than five, it's, I don't think it's very good. And and it go way beyond six. You can you can go up to eights and nines, whatever, playing with this. It's around a 20-minute, half-an-hour-long game, and it's very funny. So what's it about? It's whew, a card game. Everyone's going to get a hand of cards, and these cards are going to show one of seven different animals. There's cockroaches, bats. Uh, stink bugs, whatever stink bugs are some different animals anyway and then there are a few special ones and there's one royal of every single one of those types of animals and on your turn, whoever starts is going to look at one of their cards, they're going to put it face down, slide it over the table to someone and tell them something about that card, now they can tell the truth or they can lie the person they pass it to has got a choice of either accepting the card and flipping it, but first saying true or false. So if I slide a card to Sean and say that's a cockroach, if he flips it, he has to either say, yes, that is a cockroach, or no, that isn't a cockroach. 
If he's right, I keep the card face up in front of me and have to play another card. Face up cards in front of you are bad. If he's wrong, he has to keep the card in front of him and he has to play another card. If he doesn't do that, he can pick up the card, look at it, put it back down again, slide it to a different player and tell him anything. Anything at all he likes, whether it's related to what I said or not, whether it's related to what's on the card or not. He just does whatever he wants. And that person then has the same choice of calling him out, true or false, or looking at the card and passing it on. Any mechanical explanation in this game is going to make it sound (laughs) rubbish because this is just a framework for social interaction. It is a game that people explain to you and you go, what? What is... Why? What? What have you got me to play? What is this lunacy? And even the first couple of times cards go around, you're sitting there going, what? I've got no idea. What the hell is happening? And then it starts to dawn on you. And then people start getting collections of cards in front of them. So they're forced into playing in certain ways. And then you start to have that thing whereby you've seen someone say something before and then you've seen whether it's true or false. So you start trying to read them. It becomes, it grows and it grows and it grows. And I'll tell you one of the great things about it is that when you first get a card, it makes the difference. Okay, You've got a face-up card in front of you, you don't care. If you get four of the same animal, you lose and everyone else wins. Okay, Everyone else around the table gets a shared joy of going, ha ha, and you have to be the one, you know, not so great. Which is actually, it's a bit mean, but it's pretty funny. And you do not want to be that person who loses. There's more pressure, I think, to not be the loser than there is to be a winner in other games. Also, because you don't care what cards you get, although you try not to get any, until you start getting a few, the tension ratchets up. It actually has an arc to this game. Because the first stink bug I get, whatever stink bug is, I don't care. The second one, I'm going, oh, second, I'm 50% to losing here. If I get a third one, every time someone says a card's a stink bug around the table, I'm sweating, going, no, don't. I don't want it. Don't bring it anywhere near me. I don't want any more stink bugs because I'll have lost. Really simple, really funny, creates conversation, creates kind of lubrication for the social interactions. And that's part of Big Games Club. I find it's one of the games that comes out again and again and again. It's a way of people to get to know each other and, and share funny laughs. It doesn't take long to play. I enjoy it. I've played it a lot. Kakalak and Poker Royal. Sean, begin the verbal beating. No, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. When you first do tell the rules, you are sitting there going, what? What have, you, what have you got me involved in? What is it going on? And then it does dawn on you that this game is a farce. An absolute nonsense of a game. It's ridiculous. It's a con. Someone's conned you into thinking that this is a game where you're, what you do matters. No, it doesn't. It's a 50. You might as well flip a coin. I'm going to flip a coin because that's all this is. It's a flip of a coin. It doesn't matter unless someone's the worst liar and they wet themselves and break down in a flood of tears because they've told a lie. It doesn't matter. You're not going to read people and don't con yourself into thinking you're going to read people. You're not. It's going round the table. People are going to say, they're going to make up their mind a flip of a coin. It's like, oh, well, I'll say that's that. Who knows whether it is or not? You've got no way of knowing. You might as well just literally Spin a bottle and say, "Meeny, meeny, my." Easy now. Spin a bottle. Relax. <laughs> Sorry, that's 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 the end of night game. <laughs> Only on man night. <laughs> so, if I tell you that I played in a Kakalaka Poker Royal tournament, are you going to be disgusted with me? <laughs> I'm actually 
dialing the cab to come and punch you right now. I, I even ended up on the loser's table. You know I'm shaking my head. I know, I'm not I ang- know. I'm not angry. You just had to be there, though, to see people getting knocked out and see the disgust and uproar just to know this is a great game it provokes emotional reactions it provokes people turn around to people they've never met before going you sodden liar what are you doing to me it provokes an emotional reaction that's anger that someone's made somebody pay money for this nonsense i just why do you hate fun every fun game i mention on this list you hate get out of here <laughs> oh this isn't a game this Good isn't a Lord. game. Shadow Magic's not a game. Timeline's not a game. Screw you, buddy. Screw you, buddy. Right. We shall move on from fun games then and take it to something <laughs> a bit more not logical. Fun. Although, actually, this has got a large element of bluff in it as well, but maybe we'll get there. This is number 14, Card City, from Album Viard, published by Luda Bay for one to four players, and the artist is Daphani. It's a... 30-minute game. I'd say it's about right, 30 to 45 minutes. It is. uh, Everyone is trying to build together a city of cards in a 5x5 grid, and each of the cards represents a different zone in the city. So you've got residential, leisure, industrial, commercial, and car parking. Now, each of those zones have got their own little rules as to what they can and can't be next to, and also... Some of them have got, if they're surrounded by certain other cards in your 5x5 grid, well, it will eventually be 5x5, hopefully, they're going to spread and you're going to get a card for free. And yet, some are going to give you monetary income and some are going to cost you money. So you're going to, there's something to balance there. Now, if you're just able to pick the cards and put them down, that would be a bit easy, but that's not how it works. I'm going to take you through probably a three-player game. It's probably best with three players and it's probably easiest to explain with three players. So if you're the start player, you are going to draw six cards, so two for each player. And then you're going to do something. You're going to make an offer to the person to your left. The offer is going to be a choice between two cards or four cards. The two cards will be face up. So if the person accepts them, those are the two cards they're going to put into their city. Of the four cards, two are going to be face up and two are going to be face down. Now, if they choose the four cards, you must keep the two card bid that you offer to them. They get to take those four cards and make another bid now to the next person along on their left. And that's going to be a double card bid and another one of where one card's face up, one card's face down. That's probably, again, no one's following that, are they? We'll go back to the beginning. You're making an offer in which the person you're offering can either choose to accept your bid or push it straight back to you. So that bid you're trying to make there, you have to make it enticing enough <laughs> that they think about it. Yeah, not great, because you don't want to give them free, you know, good cards to go in their city. But not rubbish either, because if they don't accept it, you're going to get it. So you can't dump rubbish in there. It's really, really interesting. That's kind of, the, the building up the city is interesting. It's a very sp- spatial thing that's going on. And the way, um, because zones increase by themselves if they're surrounded by a number of zones of other colors and and they interact with different ways there's a real spatial aspect going on which i find interesting but the bidding is the human interaction bit where you have to kind of judge and look at their city and think 
will they take that or will they screw me over and give it back again? I don't want to put them in a position where they can screw me, but then I also don't want to get stuck with these four rubbish cards having to reveal even more information to the next person because if they take those two cards, I have to do that secondary bid where three of the four are face up and then they're going to have a lot more to know. So you're kind of teetering along this, this tightrope of how good should I make this bid, how, how good should I not? There's a bit of economic management in there. You want to grow your commercial zones that bring you in money. The only cards actually down on the board that score you points are residential ones, which grow from leisure, but leisure costs you money, so you're going to have to grow your commercials, but they grow from residentials. You see there's a whole cycle thing going on there. And then you have industrial zones, and you need those in order to build your city, because if you don't have any industrial zones, you can't actually grow beyond five cards. And then there's a rubbish one, parking, which does nothing, but some zones can't go next to each other. So sometimes you might actually think about using parking to try and keep zones apart. Oh, a whole lot to think about. My first three games, I was all at sea. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But I did know it was interesting. And I stuck with it and played it some more. And I am no longer terrible at it. I'm just very bad. Sean, Card City. Yeah, it's not it's not my kind of game. I do really, really like the bluffing element in the draft phase. That really appeals to me. I'm not the best at organizing my tiles and scoring patterns and making them the most effective. Having only played this a couple of times, I haven't reached that magic three that you finally got to. And I'm still all at sea on this one, just completely out there. I just really haven't worked out how to be effective in this game at all. In terms of the overall feel of the game, I think the theme is a bit weak. It feels like it's just tacked on, really, for me. And I'm not a massive fan of the artwork either. It's a funny one for me because it's just not the type of game I love, but I really, really love the drafting side of it. Yeah, I'm, I like both. I think it's a really, really good game. Uh, it, it's number 12 for the year. So I mean, no, it's not. It's number 14 for the year. <laughs> um, and all the games from now on in are going to be games that I really, really like and really enjoy. I'm not sure that it's got a massive amount of replayability once you get quite good at it, unless you're playing with other really good players. I think that's probably one one problem I'm going to have with it. And obviously that learning curve is is pretty hard. But really interesting. I don't think it's that you know kind of widely known or whatever. But if you see a see a copy or have a chance to play it, give it a go because you know I think everyone gets to a certain point where they've played a certain number of games and they're looking for something different and get their brain exercised in a different way and this will do that for you it's it's a really a fine game so uh, it's number 14 Card City number 13 is Dominaire or Dominare or however the hell you say that made up word it's from AEG designed by Jim Pinto it's for two to six players playing time says 120 minutes I'm going to push that up a bit I think you're going to look between 180 minutes around there somewhere again depending upon number of players you've got six players even longer than that it's set in the tempest universe along with love letter courtier mccante it's an area control game and it's also a card drafting and tableau building game this is quite meaty (laughs) how do you play it you get a hand of these characters called agents and they all have special powers and they're all going to allow you to place cubes on the board in different areas the board represents the city of tempest and they're going to allow you to earn a certain amount of money money is always useful during the game and they also can give you a certain amount of exposure which is an interesting mechanic whereby the person with the most exposure is supposed to be at a disadvantage i haven't really noticed that during the game to be honest it always seems to be a bit mostly it seems to be a positive thing to have the most exposure during the game maybe i'm wrong but at the end 
having the most exposure costs you more points than the other players, uh, and whoever has the least exposure, they don't lose any points for exposure. So there's kind of a point consideration there. And actually, in the game, this kind of big and major, you kind of think there's going to be lots of points. There's not a lot of points on offer, let me tell you. So you're going to be using these agents, and it's played over seven seasons, and every turn you get to add one of your agents to uh, your tableau. It's called your conspiracy. And they're going to give you powers and they're going to give you more cubes and more money like I said and you're basically going to be by using these things get cubes on the board in different areas trying to dominate both individual squares some of which will give you some points which is very handy but also it dominate numbers of squares inside different districts of the city which at the end are going to give you victory points and during the game are going to give you special powers if you dominate different areas as you go through the game generally the powers of your agency are going to get more powerful but you're very limited in your actions, so you're not going to be able to do everything that you want to do. And players are going to really hugely be interacting. There's an awful lot of backwards and forwards and to and fro and swinging in this game as people are really fighting it out over these spaces. There's not enough good spaces for the number of players. And uh, handily, the board comes with two sides, one for less players and one for five or, five or six players. It's definitely a blend of kind of Euro theme uh, and mechanics. This crappy Tempest theme I've gone on about before. I hate it, but fine. It's supposed to be Euro-y. It's, it's QB, it's area control, but it's also got big American influences in that. It's very swingy. There's some random in there. There's some special powers. You don't know what people are going to be... What cool agents they're going to be playing in those last two or three turns and and how that can turn the game on its head it's definitely one you can't plan for you're not you can go with a certain strategy you can definitely build up your your own conspiracy your own agents in a certain direction but there's no way of knowing what everyone else is going to do so it is random i think the higher player numbers are too many definitely with six i, I found it too many very very swingy at the end in, in how the points are scored very hard to tell who's going to score what, the victory points of different things goes up and down, they're affected by different cards and by uh, events that happen every turn, so again, tough to tell whether it's worth investing everything in one area, but it's number 13 for a reason, I really like it, it's definitely itches your brain, it's really thinky, everyone else's actions are important, you have to, although it's swingy, you have to kind of build bases in certain areas, even if you don't end up controlling that area, it will make players waste actions trying to kick you out, while you maybe concentrate on something that's more important to you, you can almost set traps up for each other, you can't leave players alone, you have to go after them, if you leave someone alone, in my first game, people just gave me the merchant area in the middle and went, oh he's too powerful, we can't touch him, Great, because you know what that means? I can now spend the next half of the game attacking other areas and not worrying about having to defend myself while you're all trying to defend yourself from me attacking you. Bad idea. I'm going to backstab you. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to lie. I'm going to act like I'm going to help you out, and I'm not. Practically every move you make, screw someone else over. You have no choice. If you're not screwing someone else over, you're not playing properly. Put it that way. So I love it. I love the tension. I love that when you're doing and someone starts going well in the Senate, for example, and then people start jumping on playing green cards and attacking them. And then they're like, oh, yeah, no, look at that. Look at this over there. Lots of interaction around the board. There's targets that you're after should be shifting every time or different people look powerful. So you might all pick on people, someone for, for half an hour, but once they've been beaten down a bit, it's not worth your time beating them down anymore. You're going to have to start going after someone else and it creates real rivalries and tensions it's definitely not a static area control game you know some of these games if someone builds up a base of power 
it's hard to knock them out. Now, I'm kind of contradicting what I said there, but the other players could have knocked me out where I was in that Merchant's Guild. They just chose not to. Definitely possible. No, you can't hold up. You can't go the first quarter of the game. This is my area. You're never going to get in here. Now, different area control games treat that in different ways. You've got like uh, Jerusalem is one that we play, whereby different areas wipe at certain times during the game, depending upon random events. Or with Tammany Hall, after every vote, most of those those war bosses come off and you're left with maximum of one in each area which gives that reset well dominari the whole game is a reset mechanism cubes don't build up if i have two cubes in an area and sean puts three in my two and two of his get knocked out and you're left with one cube you don't have hugely stacked up amounts everything's constantly resetting which keeps it fresh keeps it active keeps everything kind of supple and moving and last positive i'm going to say about it i know i've dissed the theme but all the love letter characters are here in Dominare, and I'm sad enough to when I see a love letter character in my hand go, oh, oh, that's cool. Look, it's the king. Sean, Dominare, Dominare, whatever it's called. What's your thoughts? You are sad. That's true enough. <laughs> true. I tend to lean towards Dominare, but that's just the, the poet in me. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a beautifully crafted game. There's lots and lots of depth in this. Uh, loads and loads of agents so you're not going to play the same game twice in terms of what agents you get there's so many there it's a little bit overwhelming at first I'll say that it's not the most intuitive game when you first start you're kind of watching what everyone else is doing and kind of just going along with it but once you played it two or three times you start to understand the game, understand the mechanics. It's really difficult for me, this one, because I haven't quite got it round to, or sort of made my mind up that I really like this game. But I think I will in the future, so it's quite weird. I think I'm going to love this game, but I'm not quite there yet. Believe it or not, you know, I'm, I'm almost in the same category. Uh, I think it's really good. <laughs> it's good enough for me to put a number 13, but I'm not, mass- I'm not, completely sold on it there's something that, yeah there's something that i haven't quite put my finger on that holds it back from just from day one you just go wow what amazing game and i'm not sure what that is yet but i do really enjoy playing time. it yeah i do too i do too and i'm not sure i'm not sure i've got a question for you do you think it's too long with more players because is it turn five when you get a whole new rake of agents in and you've got uh, loads and loads of agents. Is yeah. it okay? And you've got loads of agents to troll through. So if you've got the higher end of players in this game, is it just a little bit too much for you to sit while everybody's trawling through all their agents? No, because it's it, it's like a Seven Wonders thing that draft. I mean, I know what you're saying because people people get many more options. But yeah, that's what I mean. Once they've yeah. got their agents and they've got all these options, and it's and it little bit of AP sets in and people are deciding what agents to put where and where they're going and I don't want to play it with six but the reason for that is because it becomes too swingy because whatever you do you pretty much are going to get knocked off by the next time it comes around to you there's so many people trying to get in on different areas in terms of too many options not really but I'll tell you why because really agents are only going to work very well in certain combinations Right, So when you look at them, even if I've got a handful of 10 agents, really there's going to be two or three combinations that are worth putting together. It's not like if I go in one direction, I then have got four or five other options to go with. Not not necessarily. Those last ones, you know, say 
if I've got a card that is going to add plus five to the merchant quarter for controlling it, well, then I'm going to play cards that lets me get in there. You know, you're going to look in your hand for good combos and go with them. Fair enough. Yeah, so for me, it's an engrossing game that I do enjoy, but I haven't quite decided if I love it. It's something that I think is a bit weird about it as well is that it seems to have been a real flop. There's three people with more than five plays logged of this on BoardGameGeek. It's got 384 total plays. It's been out for over six months. I know BoardGameGeek's not the be-all and end-all of, of, of gaming, and we shouldn't read too much into it, but it does seem a bit weird, doesn't it? It's, it's a big company, they've been a big push. We've heard a lot about these Tempest games, and I mean, I think it got, you know, you're looking for some kind of boost, right? I think it got a decent Dice Tower review, and still nothing. Is it that crappy theme? I think, yeah, a little bit of theme. I'm not sure how well they pushed the individual games. I think Love Letter just took off on its own. People played it a few times and went, oh my God, what a fun game. And loads of people just got loads of plays quickly out of Love Letter. And it's the time that you have to take to play Love Letter. It's only a few minutes. Whereas this one's quiet and involved. And yeah, as you say, the theme's not great. And I don't think that they actually pushed each individual game they just released them as a series. So I'm not sure whether the marketing for these this series worked yeah, that well. Yeah, I wonder. I haven't played the other two yet. I've got one of them. But I wonder whether if they're not as good, is this getting pulled down by them? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Anyway, for now, uh, we, we both have some reservations. But it's hard to explain why because it's, it is fun to play. I think it might be because it's so long and yet swingy. It's one of those that combines Euro and Ameritrash things. Uh, and whether you like the balance it's certainly slightly more towards the random chaos than a lot of other area control games but I really enjoy my games a bit number 13 Dominari So we crack on to number 12 and this is a game we covered in our very first episode and it's D-Day Dice from designer Emmanuel Aquin and from Valley Games Inc. for one to four players. It is a dice rolling recreation of the landings, D-Day landings in Normandy, 1944. We talked about this a lot in episode one. By all means, go back and listen to that if you want to listen to more depth about it. Each player has a set of dice. You're going to be rolling them. You're trying to get certain combinations on your dice in order to advance along a map. It starts with a small body of men and you're going to be trying to collect men as you go along. And they are almost like your resource. You're trying to keep a certain number alive in order to get to a bunker at the end, your, your end goal through increasingly dangerous areas and to conquer the bunker and then you've won the scenario. It comes with a ton of scenarios, it comes with lots of different cards that are available depending upon what map you're playing, it's got a real good progressive difficulty in it, the first maps are training maps are easier and they get harder and harder and harder and it's a game that Sean and I have played a lot, it's one of the few games I'll play solo, we've played it together, it's, it's more fun like pretty much every game with, with other people but it certainly works solo it's challenging I don't know we heard lots of people we talked about this episode that people said it was too easy I don't know what game you're playing or whether I'm cack handed but this is not easy I find it a real challenge I find it really nice to look at I find that as a co-op it works well because 
Although it promotes teamwork because working together works best. You talk to each other. You go that way. I'll go this way. We can you know, balance that way. Let's share these resources and what have you. But you can't dictate to the other person what to do on their turn because they're rolling dice. So you can't tell them roll this or roll that. I suppose a little bit you can tell them what to save. There's like, you know, yeah, that whole Yahtzee thing. You can save a certain number of dice, but not really. So I think that this works well as a co-op. You, one player can't take over. It also feels like there's lots of paths to explore. The it, I've put it as both a plus and a minus each map is like a puzzle and it seems like there's different routes to go down to solve that puzzle i'm thinking there's actually not that many viable ones once you kind of work out what's the most efficient way to do it that's the most efficient way to do it and that's how you should do it every time so but it certainly for me at least fools me into thinking it's got that depth of of, of variety of, of tactics and different ways we can go about doing things to a point where sometimes actually does it get a little bit too mathy and take you out of the theme. It does feel tense. It does feel like you're fighting against something. And you're constantly getting worn down. You're having to fight against that attrition. While I, you know, they, these complaints, that they're, they're minor niggles for me, by the way. This is my number 12 game of the year. I've played it lots. I really enjoy it. There's so much even in that base box to get into. You can you can get dozens and dozens and dozens play out of that box. Never mind the numerous expansions that are available. Sean, D-Day Dice. Yeah, as we said in our very first episode this is a beautiful looking game it's wonderfully designed in my opinion everything is just made to that little bit better spec than most games you see out there it's an enjoyable dice game and one of the things that i felt about this game is that it was respectful of its subject matter it does have dedications to people who lost their lives in in the d-day landings on the rule book and in the scenarios etc as ronan said it is a game that you can play solo and you can you almost enjoy it as much as when you play it with friends two i think is the optimum i don't think i think three gets a bit messy but i think with two people it's perfect yeah what ronan said exactly he, i think he covered everything in it for me i think it's a, a very very enjoyable game and a simple game with hidden depth yeah absolutely like i say for any more go back to episode one d-day dice number 12 for 2012 for me Moving on to number 11, another thematic game but on a completely different level. It's Legendary, a Marvel deck building game. Designers Devin Lowe came from Upper Deck Entertainment. It's for one to five players. It says 45 minutes on the box. Who knows? I'll come back to that. So in this game, it's kind of hard to get your head around the theme, but there is definitely some kind of mastermind villain. They definitely have a scheme they're trying to achieve. And they're definitely going to have a group of henchmen and minor villains, and sometimes not so minor villains, helping them to try to achieve this scheme. And as a group, the players are attempting to stop this from happening. So it is co-op to some degree. How you're going to do that is you're going to choose five heroes from the Marvel Universe, and each of those heroes has got their own deck. You're going to shuffle all those decks together, and then you're going to do some deck building. You're going to start with some basic shield agents, which give you one of two different currencies for fighting or, or purchasing cards. You're going to purchase cards, put them in your deck. If you know what deck building is, you know how this works. They go, you discard pile, you shuffle them up, and as they come out, you come more and more and more powerful. All the while attempting to slow down the mastermind and prevent their scheme. That's the basics, right? <laughs> Why did I say who knows how long this takes? This is a massively variable game. It's the biggest thing I have to say about it. I couldn't tell you how any one game of this is going to play because who the mastermind is is going to change how the game works especially which one of those several schemes that comes in the game is out hugely changes how the game works each scheme makes each game different and that's brilliant i love it 
it's also makes it a bit hard to teach and a bit hard for people to get their head around in those first few plays because every game is wildly different. Also, each villain set's a bit different. Now, they're not that different. That's probably one of the things that changes things most. Yeah, they're all going to try and do a certain amount of things, but they're all nicely flavoured, nicely themed. It really does feel like you're fighting Skrulls or fighting whoever it might be. Each hero deck is really different. They all have their own pluses and minuses, different ways of playing, different ways of interacting with other decks that are in there. Now, I can't remember how many heroes there are. I think there are 14. Now, 5 out of 14, if you think of all different combinations there, that Hulk works with Spider-Man in a certain way, but he works with Thor in a different way. And Iron Man and Storm work well together. Maybe Wolverine doesn't work so well with them. And then, actually, this masterminds Magneto, so we need some X-Men in there, because what group a hero belongs to makes a difference. But then, have we got too much melee? Because, you know, melee doesn't work well against this lot, and you're kind of getting the idea. All these cards interact with each other to make a game up. It's a big, huge, swirling whirlpool of interaction. It works. It works really well, mostly. <laughs> but if I, I, I haven't come across it not working yet. But what I have come across is that every time I play, it's like I'm learning a new game. I'm starting to get hidden depths out of it. Now, we talked about this a lot. We did, we did a pit fight with the different superhero card games, DC this and Settle of the Multiverse. So again, go back to that where we talk about it a bit more. But this is a game of real depths massive variability really really thematic feels like it's got a genuine marvel flavor to it it doesn't feel like someone pasted on a few bits and bobs onto a standing mechanic it feels like this was built to be a marvel game it's more engaging than just collecting victory points so many deck builders get fixated on just buying victory points okay dominion does that Dominion did it first, it does it best. You're not going to beat it at that, forget about it. Find something different to do with deck building. Plenty of games have done that, this game does it. There is a certain amount of amassing VPs in there, and this is one of my bones to pick. But mostly what you should be doing is trying to stop that scheme. Okay, As a team, try to stop the scheme. Thematically, why is it difficult when I'm saying about how great and thematic all these cards are? Because it's hard to know who you are in the game. You're not a hero. I'm not playing Spider-Man's deck. I'm not playing the Hulk's deck. I'm not playing Captain America's deck. I'm controlling all five of them at once, these heroes. How does that work? Again, refer back to our episode. I guess you're some kind of shield controller. That's what we're going to go with. Also, is it a co-op or is it not? You're all working together against the game, but supposedly there's supposed to be a winner at the end because the cards you defeat, you get them. They've got a victory point total on them and someone has more victory points than someone else. That's just completely by the by for me. I don't really care about that, to be honest with you. Although the game's a bit easy if you're not trying to screw each other over. Well, then thematically, how does it work if you are trying to screw each other over then who the hell are we We're evil rogue shield agents yeah it kind of breaks down around that a bit if the game was always a bit tougher than it is at the moment i think that it would work fine as just a pure co-op as a pure co-op now certainly with the two easiest masterminds it's way too easy the next one makes it a bit harder and then i think the last one not think is Loki or Magneto I can't remember anyway that, that then you're getting to a bit more of a challenge again depending upon the scheme depending upon what villains you've got but there is an expansion coming out called Dark City which apparently makes it a lot harder I'm really looking forward to that give me more of a challenge make me have to work together with my fellow players turn it into a proper co-op let's not sit on this crappy line of is it a co-op is, is it not like lots of games try and do and I just hate that mechanic so bad things we talked about it before setup time's horrific to set up a breakdown time you can spend more time doing that than you can playing the game and like I just mentioned sometimes it's a bit too easy Sean my number 11 legendary what do you think 
I'm a big comic book fan, and I was... You are a big comic book fan. <laughs> I'm a big fan of comics, and I'm a big comic book fan. This was one that really had me excited. I think when we first heard about this one, we were kind of bouncing up and down. Then we found out that it wasn't going to come over to this country. You ended up shipping it over from America, only to find that shops started getting it shortly after, which was quite amusing. But there's something about this that leaves me a little bit cold. It is a good game. Don't get me wrong. It's a good game. I enjoy it. I nearly bought it the other day. But the setup time is ridiculous. It's almost prohibitive in terms of if you're going to get out a card game, you look at that and you think that's going to take us the best part of 30 minutes to set up but this one's only going to take two all right we'll go with the shorter one so you have to be really invested in it and you have to have people who really want to play it the card design was a major flaw for me having one card design for each hero deck no matter what the card powers did just sort of threw me out because you have to constantly get up start looking at them and the part the little powers the things that interact with the other cards are so small on them and they're hard to read, they're hard to decipher from a distance. That that threw me out a little bit. But it's still a good game. It's a very good co-op. I think I do tend to agree with Ronan in terms of this thing where you get an end an end game winner. Not so sure because it should be all about defeating that as as a group of superheroes or as a shield controller as Ronan contends. But it's not the game I hoped for. But it's it's pretty damn close. Yeah, it's certainly different than I expected it to be. It's up here because love the theme. It's got real variety in it, much more so I think than almost any other box I've ever bought with a game in. It, this has got so many different ways of playing in there, and also because it's got depth. It's got more depth I think than probably any other deck builder I've bought, and that's just coming through now. It, I'm just always discovering new ways of playing, new interactions. That is great. It's not what people expect from a deck builder. So I think sometimes you've got to break down people's expectations. They think it's going to be a pick up and play. Yeah, we're so used to playing deck builders that are just like Dominion. This isn't that, but it is a really, really good game. It's by number 11. It's legendary, a Marvel deck building game. So we're into the top 10, Mr. Rice. Roll on, sir. Roll on, good sir. <laughs> number 10, the Resistance Avalon. Designer Don Eskridge and from Indie Boards and Cards. It's for 5 to 10 players and it's a retheme with a few couple of new mechanics in of the original The Resistance, which came out a couple of years ago. It's a group game. It's a traitor game. It's probably the traitor game, I'd say. As a group, uh, in this version, you are King Arthur's Knights and you're going to be attempting to go on quests and do them successfully. However, depending upon player number, a certain number of your Arthur's Knights are infiltrators from Mordred and you are going to attempt to sabotage those quests. At the beginning of the game, everyone gets a roll, whether it be loyal to Arthur or a minion of Mordred. Then everyone closes their eyes. Then only the Mordred team, which will be the minority, no matter how many players you play with, get to open their eyes and they know who's on their team. Everyone closes their eyes. Everyone opens their eyes. Then you start trying to pick teams, voting on whether you like the team that's been picked or not, which is limited to five in each round, by the way. Eventually, you're going to choose, decide upon a team to go on a mission. That team again gets to put in one of two cards, either a pass or a fail card. They get shuffled up and revealed, and you find out whether everyone on that mission passed it or failed it. If they all passed it, they might all be loyal servants of Arthur. If at least one person failed it, you know you've got at least one minion of Mordred on there, because the loyal servants would never play a fail card. You're trying to work out by talking, 
lying, cheating, staring each other in the eye, asking ridiculous questions, seeing voting patterns, seeing selection patterns, and whether missions pass or fail, who's on what team. The loyal Knights of Arthur are trying to work out who the minions of Mordred are and trying to keep them off the teams, which they should be able to do because the team's decided by majority voting and the majority will always be the loyal loyalty. But obviously they have no information from the start of the game. Only the minions of Mordred know anything. It's a balance between lying and not lying, revealing yourself, not revealing yourself. Whichever side does three quests in their direction, be it completed quests for the Knights of Arthur or failed quests for the minions of Mordred, they win. What Avalon does, as opposed to straight up resistance, it brings into special roles. Things like Merlin, who's a goodie but gets to see who the baddies are. Percival, who gets to see who Merlin is but not who the baddies are. Oberon, who's a baddie that the other baddies don't know who they are and he doesn't know who the other baddies are. Things like this. It mixes it up a bit. It is a development on the werewolf slash mafia theme. It is not mechanically very sound or great or deep. It is very group reliant you're relying upon a group to all be engaged in the game and take part and listen especially if you're playing resistance you need everyone to be on their game and kind of playing properly and myself and lots of people at our board game group london board have probably played it a bit to death and we're trying to find ways to balance it now so having given it a kick in it's also fantastically fantastically fun it's a group social interaction game like no other this game will get people together and talking and it will do it quickly because you have to talk you're trying to get people to talk you're trying to get people to reveal themselves you people have to lie if you can't lie don't play this if you're the sort of person who will turn red or not cope with it or burst into tears stay away because people will be throwing bare-faced lies to you i have offered genuine physical threats to people if they're lying to me and they've still continued lying to me because it's part of the game it's great for a big group it's great for broken down social barriers and getting people to know each other uh, a lot of times when we're gaming we just heads down game play for two or three hours walk out the room you haven't got to talk to anyone else who's in that room if you go to a group this is the sort of game where at the end of the night everyone get together and chat and get to know each other and it forges closer ties i think i think it's brilliant i think it's great for getting to know people i think it's brilliant if you play it with a group of friends and you're trying to work out with each other it's great if you get to play with the same people you're trying to recognize their patterns of play whether they have any tells or what have you it's a lot a lot of fun it's not that much of a game it's a great social experience i concur this is everything that crapper larkin isn't in that you actually have something to work off and deciding if people are spies because they've got to scupper things is their is their mandate. I think Avalon, as you said, it's given the game a little bit of a twist, but it's not so much that it just throws everyone off and it's still definitely resistance with a little bit of a twist rather than a whole new game. Which I think is a good thing. And yeah, absolutely agree with everything you said in terms of it is a fantastic involving group game. Lots of laughs, lots of headaches, lots of stress about who's the who are the spies, lots of accusations flying around, lots of support, lots of damning and cursing. And as you said, you quite often threaten people physically, which is a little bit too much, but it's the way you roll. Great game. Love it. Want to play all the time, to be honest. I think I do play all the time. <laughs> I think you probably do. You're a bit of a shark at this now. Uh, I'm not, I'm not. I was resistant twice last night. We we always quite resistant. I was a loyal knight 
twice last night. It's so boring. But we won twice. And people tell me resistance, you can't win as resistance. Yes, you can. You just have to play well. Okay. And it's number 10, Resistance Avalon. Such fun. Number nine is Kimmit from Jacques Barrio and Guillaume Montiage. It's for two to five players. It's from Matigo uh, Asmodee. They're pretty much one and the same, I think. It's for two to five players. The playing time is suggested at 90 minutes. It certainly should be 90 minutes at the outside. I'm seeing from other people that it takes a lot longer than that. I'm wondering why. Probably that's something we'll chat about in a second, but let's go with... Okay, I'll give you two hours, but that's slow. What's it all about, Sean? It's a very light, simple war game with some Euro mechanics thrown in there quickly as well. Most specifically a tech tree and a bit of resource management. Each of the players represents a group of people in ancient Egypt and they are going to attempt to take over temples on a very simple map board in order to score some points. First person to score 10 points wins the game. You can score points that are either permanent or temporary. Temporary ones tend to be for holding certain areas on the board. Permanent ones you can score for developing certain technologies and what have you. The way you're going to do it is you're going to attack each other. You always score a point for winning a fight if you're the attacker. You can score a point for winning a fight as a defender, but you have to develop some technology to do that. So generally, attacking's good. It's encouraged. It's not difficult to get troops back on the board. It's all about throwing bits of plastic at each other and having fun. The combat happens with a card system whereby you both play a card, flip them over, see what happens. Depends upon how many troops you've got in. The other big part of it, apart from just chucking loads of plastic figures at each other in fact it's so light you can teleport figures around the place you can almost attack anywhere on a turn by going to to a teleport area and teleport to another area how that works thematically i don't know but it is fun it certainly keeps you on your toes as long as you accept that on a second these guys can fly wherever they want okay go with it the other part of it is a tech tree sort of a thing you can build up resources in order to buy techs in three different areas on four different levels and they're going to give you special powers as you go through they're going to make you they basically go in terms of one makes you better at praying which is what your resource is one makes you better generally defensively and one makes you generally better on the offense and it's great it's a real interesting tech tree there's lots of different powers there and it's not hard to get your head around at all i will say it's vital to have a player aid for each player that has a, a a picture of all these tiles on because the tiles represent tech trees you buy them they put it in front of you you've got that power for the rest of the game and if people are having to stop and look at those tiles all the time it can really slow the game down just print out a player aid you will knock a third of the game time off because that's where a lot of decisions are made is how you're going to develop your sieve in a certain direction don't get me wrong it's not that deep you don't have to think that much about it but it's just for example and one of the coolest parts of the game is there's these monster figures that you can develop the tech to give you certain monsters which are going to help you in fights now that's the kind of game it is i can get a giant scarab to help me fight and that's going to help me beat things up better and it's brilliant it's funny it's hilarious the figures are beautiful especially those big giant monster ones they just look great they are so cool that whether it's the right choice or not, I just wanted to get those monster technologies just so I could push my giant scarab around or have the snake that negates the other monsters or what have you. Brilliant fun. It is all about fun, this game. It's all about just go for it. You know, if I've got a choice to attack or not attack, damn it, I'll attack. If I win, I get a point. I only need 10 to win. Just go for it. Why not? Don't overthink it. Don't try and turn it into a Euro. Just it's got a tech tree and some resources. It's not that. It's a trashy, fun, throw, bosh, bosh, bosh game. It looks pretty. It should play quickly. 
I played this in very little over an hour, and three of us were brand new to the game, okay? I'm sitting next to games that are taking three, three and a half hours to play. You're killing me. I'm not having fun playing another game just because I can see how long you're taking playing Kemet. It's not that thinky. Just attack each other. Get on with it. The tech tree, although basic, does feel like it gives you nice variety and strategy. It feels like you can go different ways and still be successful. It doesn't all make sense. It is pretty swingy, but it's also an absolute ton of fun, but hard to get hold of in the UK and expensive. But worth it, I think. Sean? Absolutely gorgeous game. It's just beautiful to look at. The board is brilliantly designed. I love the way that you're equidistant from everyone. When I first looked at the game, there's one civilization or player starts right in the middle of the board and I first I looked at it and that player's just gonna get molested from all sides. Just gonna get what? Molested <laughs> by the other armies. Uh, but then you look at the way the game set out and it's all it's, it's basically circles and wavy lines and it equates to that you're only I think it's three or four moves away from anybody from your home city your three or four moves and uh, generally it's a lot less than that generally you can just teleport somewhere really quick. oh yeah if you can go to the temples and be teleported but if you're just gonna transport you're four moves away and you're everyone's equidistant to those transport areas so there's no advantage on the map it's beautifully designed beautifully drawn as ronan said just getting to play with those big monster pieces is an event in itself. I think Ron is probably going to talk about a certain element of this game that's going to link up with Cyclades. In Cyclades... <laughs> He's very excited. In Cyclades, you had the same monsters, and I'm, I'm agreeing with the Dice Tower, because they mentioned exactly the same thing. You got, didn't get to use those monsters, they just went. In this game, you are going to be able to use those monsters and that appeals to the child in all of us just pushing around a cyclops or as Ren said a scarab where you've got that big serpent fantastic fun game it just encourages you to attack 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 that's the name of the game don't mess around defending your your position and sitting there and trying to eke out points just go out there and have a good old slap fest give each other a kick in that's where the fun of this game is the tech trees so the tech tree, there's so much in that tech tree is why Ronan said we need the player aid, really. Not so because it's a deep game or it's a deep, any of those things are difficult to understand. It's just there's so many of them and there's so many ways you can go about this game. You're never going to have the same game twice again. It's just a a beautiful and fun game. I think it definitely one of my top 10 and I'm glad it's in Ronan's top 10. Yeah, get fun, fun, fun. Not three hours. Okay, <laughs> so just quickly to mention what we're talking about, you may have heard, but uh, at Essen this year, they're releasing a kind of mini expansion which links Cyclades and Kemet and lets you use the Kemet monsters in Cyclades, which is kind of cool. I mean, there's a few Kemet monsters in there, right? There's five or six, what have you. But let's use the Cyclades monsters in Kemet and there's millions of them, especially if you've got the expansion. And they're going to be available for the whole game. And what they're going to do? I'm so excited. This is the most awesome idea ever. We need to start looking at games that will work well together. I know these two are from the same publisher and what have you. But that is your mission, Sean. To come up with games that you think, if you could use this in this, how awesome would it be? Calm down. In Kemet. Calm down. 
Go and get your calm trousers. I wouldn't. They we're going to burn them. Go and get your calm trousers I'm right now, young. To Medusa. <laughs> right, number nine in my top ten of 2012. Our top ten of 2012, kind of. Kemet. My number eight is the two-player system from Wizards of the Coast, Dungeon Command. I particularly chose Sting of Loth because it's the one I have most fun playing with, but the whole system really. Designed by Chris Dupree, Peter Lee, Kevin Tatro, and Rodney Thompson. Playing time is 90 minutes, which I think is about right for a game of it. It's my number eight, but at this stage, I'm going to hand over to Sean because, Sean, it's your... Number one, baby. Yeah! I love this game. It's, it is my favourite game of 2012, and if it came out this year, it probably would be my favourite game of this year. What a great game. It's everything that you dreamed about as a kid. There's a little bit of D&D in there, a little bit of chess, and a little bit of Summoner Wars, all rolled into one. So how does it play? Very, very, very simply, you are a overlord or a controller or a wizard, whatever you're going to do, but you're going to summon these creatures to do your bidding and basically have a skirmish with the other team so you're going to build up your points your your influence points to get the player creatures out there and you're going to have cards that interact they can do spells but only certain monsters can use these cards and they can only use them in certain ways but it's just it's a game of cat and mouse with the other team and is is it's not a war game it is a straight up skirmish now you get to port some absolutely cool creatures from the world of D&D into there. There's owlbears, there's trolls, there's dragons, and of course you've got your orcs and your goblins. Now there's five factions already out. I'll try and remember them. They are the Tyranny of Goblins, the Heart of Cormair, the Sting of Loth, the Blood of Grumch, and the Curse of Undeath. I think I've got that right. And they all play differently. For instance, Ronan loves to play a Sting of Loth. Now, that's the Dark Elf faction. They are sneaky. They're in, out, do a bit of damage, run away, hide, do a bit of damage again, cast the spell, trip the people up. And that's the way Ronan likes to play, because he's sneaky and mean. Me, on the other hand, I'm a big fan of zombie games, etc. So I always tend to play with as curse of undeath and they play as undead they're very hard to kill they regenerate all the time they are gonna create disease and do things to uh, infect the other team and yeah each faction just plays that slightly bit different for me the quality of the build of these games is amazing each figure is painted it's not just one of your blank molds that they just shove out there unpainted they're painted to a decent standard the boards are detailed and make you feel like you're either in a dungeon or if you flip it over you've got the top side where there's grass and bodies of water and forests going on i think it does feel like you're having a little bit of a battle with a war band or something in a DD world now ronan it's your number eight so you must like it I do like it. I do like it a lot. I'm going to put a little couple of little counterpoints in before I start going about how great it is. It can be a little bit frustrating. I think maybe that just be a two-player thing in that it's very zero-sum, isn't it? 
if you're doing well, I'm doing badly. Sometimes the card draw as well, you can feel a little bit screwed on the card draw. But those are minor quibbles, okay? These are There has to be some problem with every game, right? Although I think I'm about to prove that wrong. The other thing is I think that sometimes winning early can be counterproductive because sometimes, you know, if you're pushing the fight into the other person's territory, then they're getting their reinforcements out quicker. And also sometimes you give them a better cho- chance to get their better creatures out earlier than you can because yours are still lingering on if that makes any sense but that comes back to the other thing in that it's very balanced it's it's really hard to run away with it you, it's i you know we've had no game where someone's been wiped off the board have we the theme is really fun it's great all the different monsters you see you know if you've ever had a monster manual or whatever you can see all these things and and what they do in the game kind of makes sense it's, there's no dice rolling for once in combat which i like it's all card play which means that things are again balanced and more thematic and you have feel like you have a bit more control over it although sometimes not if you've been particularly screwed it does feel like every decision matters it feels like you can think your way out of situations doesn't need too much ap i don't think but it really you have to consider each move and and like you said all the factions feel unique i think they've done a great job in that if you play with a certain faction you feel like you are playing with a certain faction so I really enjoy the game. I think it's brilliant. It's one of my favourite two-player games. Number eight for the year for me, Dungeon Command. Sean, any last thoughts on it? Absolutely love this game. It just appeals to the child in me. And uh, and then on top of it, having sets to collect is just uh, the killer for me. I think I'm destined to collect every single set of this. I think if it was Panini Dungeon Command, you'd actually sell your soul. (laughs) What makes you think I haven't already? Just checking, just checking. Okay. I just said for Dungeon Command that every game has to have some minuses or negatives I can pick on, right? For my number seven, I've got a game that I couldn't find any real negatives. Yet it's still only my number seven because I can't think of anything it does amazingly well either. But it is a really good game and it's Manhattan Project. It's from Minion Games, designer Brandon Tibbetts. It's for two to five players. It's a work placement game in which you are attempting to uh, design and make uh, atomic bombs, basically. Whether they be plutonium or uranium ones, uh, and not just one of them usually, you're trying to build a couple, I'm not quite sure why, other than that that really works well. It's a race, it's a race to develop these, develop your infrastructure, hire workers, hire scientists and engineers, build universities, get factories going, get get production, get the raw resources in, and all the time you're doing this by placing workers both on a central board that give you a variety of actions, and also on your own little tableau, which you're going to grow with buildings that you're going to invest in and purchase and what have you, to give you more workers, more resources, more choices, and so on and so on. And everyone's going to be trying to develop these bombs at the same time. You're going to have a victory point total depending upon the number of players playing. And whoever hits that victory point first wins. It is an arms race and it is a real race. That's something I do kind of emphasize when I'm teaching it is that this game can be finished quickly. It's bang, bang, bang. I've done it. There you go. And generally everyone's getting to a certain level and it becomes real nip and tuck at the end. It's got a unique theme. And if you stop and think about it, it, could be one of the worst themes ever in a game i don't know why it's got such a pass for the theme you are building atomic bombs but somehow because it all feels a bit dry and and mathematic and scientific he may be it's got a pass on this but i actually like the theme i think it's it's nice to have a unique theme it's not something we think about much it's also it's a euro game very much so but it does have interaction not enough that it takes it out of that euro bracket but enough to make it interesting 
You can spy on, on your fellow players, which allows you to use their buildings, which is brilliant because it blocks them from using their buildings. So if you can use a spy action and take their two best buildings out of action for a couple of turns, great. Now you're getting a benefit and they're getting something taken off them. And in this kind of efficiency race game, that can make a difference. You can also bomb each other. It doesn't have that big an impact, to be honest with you. I'm not sure I've ever seen it be a real game changer, but it's certainly something that's interesting. If you have a factory that gives you cheap planes, you can have fighter planes as defense uh, and bomber planes to actually do damage to things. Uh, if you can get them out, why not? Go and annoy someone. Go and bomb some of their factories. Make them waste turns again, fixing the, their buildings before they can use them again. You can start slowing people down. I like it. It's kind of, uh, if someone starts building up their planes, suddenly everyone has to start building. It's another factor of this game being a real race. The way you build up your tableau and, and get better and get more efficient all the time is really satisfying. It's, I've talked about this before in games in that if you feel like you're creating something for yourself, that feeling is is a rewarding feeling you know you start off with nothing and you end up with this lovely production whereby a turn can really start churning together and you can really start feeling again the pace of the game picking up and picking up towards this this final finish it's nicely made it's got a good theme it's fun to play i couldn't find any negatives for this manhattan project sean yeah i'm kind of in the same boat it's a decent design i think this is really weak I think I would have preferred meeples rather than the little cardboard pieces. Uh, that's, a, that's a very, very minor, minor quibble. Again, not really that into the theme, but yeah, okay, we, we, can get, we can get by the theme. It is different. It's a good game of tit-for-tat worker placement. It can be a little bit in your face when you have punchy players who can make it a bit irritating by constantly bombing. There's lots of options. Even when someone takes the place that you want to go there, you've still got plenty of other things that you can do in terms of, and you can even up your spy track so you can go and spy and get that that power that you wanted anyway so yeah it's a good gamers game it's, it's very strategic i don't think there's a lot of luck involved in this game you do have to plan what you're doing but it's very well laid out and you are able to formulate a plan even if it's your first go of the game i think you can see where you need to go and where you want to go and there's there's a few different ways to get there and i like that about it yeah i um, i think we're in accordance it's a game that does everything it does really well it's good fun to play. Uh, it's not a head down Euro kind of a thing. Really good, solid, successful game. Number seven for the year, The Manhattan Project. Okay, so number six is a game which we are going to discuss in greater length in our next episode. We're going to do a special about this. It's Clash of Cultures. It's by Christian Markerson. It's for two to four players. It's from Z-Man Games. In it, each player is developing their own civilization from a basic level of technology. They're going to be developing technologies. They're going to be attempting to, to found cities, grow those cities with wonderful little plastic pieces, explore a real nice looking map with tiles, fight against each other, hopefully. That's why it's called Clash of Cultures. They should be fighting in it, fighting against uh, neutral barbarian forces. And attempt to score victory points all the way through over up to four hours of fun thematic play we are going to hammer this to death next time out so i don't think we'll talk about it too much here i will go quickly over some positive and negatives kind of giving the game away and that is my number six of the year that i really like it positives it encourages conflict okay um i've played this game with no conflict we we played it and none of us knew the game very well and we played it as a euro and it just didn't work it doesn't work as as just a pure tech tree game it, it's it's a good 
version of that. Okay, if you played it just as Euro, it would be a good game. You'd be like, yeah, yeah it's pretty good. Yeah, it probably be my top 40 for the year, what have you. The fact that it encourages you to fight, that it gives you points for fighting via objectives, that it it's it's too tempting not to fight, really. That it's funnier, it's more fun when you fight. It's really turns it into something a lot of fun. It, it just and that's kind of you don't often think about four hour civ building games that are fun. You think, yeah, they're great, they're interesting, you know, through the ages, yeah, scratches and itch, it's hard to play. But is it fun through the ages? If you know it really well, maybe, but or not particularly. But this is fun. It's deep enough to make you think but it, it's also shallow enough that you don't have to think too much, that you don't have to get focusing on every single little move, that you can react to what's going on. There's certainly tactical to it as well as strategic with all the interaction that can happen. Unfortunately, it does mean that it can finish too quickly because if one player gets wiped out, that's the end of the game. So you're giving yourself up for a four-hour Civ Fest and suddenly you've played a 45-minute game because someone's been absolutely twatted. And, yeah, you know, but actually, that's quite funny as well. I can live with that. Everything makes sense in the game. Graphic design's lovely it looks cool building up your cities is just awesome your city starts as a small disc and every extension you put on it fits around that disc until you have five pieces of plastic together and so physically your city grows on the board i love it it's a good blend of euro and ameritrash mechanics i just think it's a real solid fun sieve building game sean yeah very quickly for reasons that you've made obvious this is the game that I think Sid Meier's Civilization, the board game, should have been. It's a lot more loyal to the computer game, and I think it's a bit more fun to boot. I love the in-the-face element of the game that you've discussed, and I think there's so much longevity to this. I won't go much more, because we will be talking about it soon. So yeah, number six for the year 2012, Clash of Cultures. Tune in next time, and we're going to be going over it a lot. We get into the top five. This is a game we've discussed previously, so... I think there might be a fight coming up. One of us really likes Escape the Curse of Temple and made it his number five game of the year, and one of us doesn't. It's by Christian Amundsen Ostby. It's from Queen Games. It's for one to five players. It is a real-time, dice-rolling, cooperative game in which the team of players are attempting to collect gems from an ever-unfolding temple under stressful conditions in order to find a way out and all get out together and have a gay old time. You roll dice and you try and move around the place and you try not to roll badly. You have a 10-minute timer, which is going to go off twice during those 10 minutes. Um, during those times it goes off, you must all get back to the central area or lose a dice. There are gems. There's a certain number of them. You must reduce this pile of gems by visiting different rooms and rolling different combinations on your dice in order to take them out of the pile because the number of gems in that pile is basically the more there are in there, the harder it is to get out. And unless you reduce them right down, it's impossible for anyone to get out and you must all get out together. It's a great fun game for groups of people who are willing to have fun. Get together. It only It's, it's on a 10 minute timer. It cannot take more than 10 minutes to play play it as a group play it a few times use some of the expansions if you get too good at it because you, you will get better as you play you will improve your communications will improve what you know know what's coming up but it's great because there are these expansions which you can just chuck in and make it harder and harder and harder it's fun it's different i said before we must all be looking for different games right something that's not the same as everything else you played before this is not like anything i've played before a real-time dice roller it's hilarious it's for all ages. It feels thematic. It really feels like you're trying to escape. You're racing. You're against time. It's stressful. You're making silly mistakes. 
and it's tense. It's genuinely tense. It's hard. Well, if you play at the right level, it's hard. And because you can adjust the difficulty level yourself, it should always be hard to do. It should be that sweaty, shouty game. Is it too shouty? I don't think so. But I can hear people complaining about that. You know, the best way to work as a team is not to scream at each other. Put it that way. One thing is, I think it's too easy to cheat. And actually, mostly inadvertently, because you're rolling in real time and people are shouting and there are good gold mask dice that let you get rid of black mask dice and people you know it's too easy for two people to use one gold dice and what have you and the other real problem i've got with it is that it comes with a timer which an egg timer which is not as much fun as the soundtrack you can get you can download it or i think there's a cd in the box but my kids get too scared with the soundtrack so i can never play it with the soundtrack at home which makes me sad sean you might have a different opinion of escape hmm you're gonna accuse me of lacking fun again aren't you only if you prove to lack fun. Ah, <laughs> oh, come on. This this is a ridiculous game. It's just lots of people shouting together and throwing the dice on the table at the same time. There's no strategy, no cohesion, just lots of noise. It's uncouth. It's uncivilized. And what this is doing in your top five, I have no idea. I think you've actually gone mad. I think you've you, lost it's the plot. fun! What's wrong with oh, you? It's not. It's just a wall of noise and people cheating, firing their dice around, people shouting, I've got this, you've got that. No, who cares? Just let's play a game and stop the nonsense. It's brilliant. It's so fun. Oh, man, it's, it's so far removed from brilliant. It brings it, people can't together. It makes brilliant. you communicate. It has gives you a different experience. It adds this pressure pick... to what you're doing. It's funny. How can you not smile when you play this? This game couldn't pick Brilliant out on a map. It's not in the same hemisphere as Brilliant. It's just ridiculous. How, how can you smile? How can you smile when people are just there screaming, talking gibberish, shouting, rolling dice that you don't have any interaction with because you're focusing on your dice you're trying to work out what you've got. And you look up and there's this sea of dice and people screaming, I've got this! Has anybody got that? I don't know. It's just nonsense. Okay, so I think we've got to the heart of the matter. There's a game that my seven-year-old daughter could deal with, but you couldn't. It's just silly. It's all right. Listen, go back in your room. We'll feed you later. You take it easy. No one wants <laughs> to see your rage anymore, okay? Slide my drugs under the, under the door and I'll yeah. be fine. Yes, dear. Escape. My number five for 2012 Sean's just wrong number four is apparently a bit of a contentious love-hate game which I just don't understand it's Lords of Waterdeep from Wizards of the Coast Designers are Peter Lee and again Rodney Thompson. It's for two to five players. Playing time 60 minutes. That's about right to me. It is a D&D themed worker placement game. Something which I think a lot of us thought we'd never see. It is based around the city of Waterdeep. And you are going to be using your workers to build or activate buildings available in the city. And in doing so, you're going to be attempting to put together bands of adventurers and send them off on quests you've collected in order to score points or get related powers which are going to help you during the game. 
It's going to be played over eight rounds. You're going to get more workers as the game goes on. And that is the game. The reason I'm being so brief is because it is a simple entry-level worker placement game that does everything really, really well, in my opinion. It lasts 60 minutes. It's the perfect depth for a 60-minute game. It's not the deepest game you'll ever play, okay? If you want to play a three-hour deep game, go and play a three-hour deep game. You want to play a 60-minute game that ticks all the boxes, gets you thinking a bit, but not hugely, is thematic, has got a different theme. How many fantasy D&D-based worker placement games are there? All right, there's a million fantasy games, but the fact that it's D&D and it's using familiar tropes, I think I really like the theme. And I think the theme works. And I will not let people call those orange, black, white and purple cubes cubes. I find that quite important. It scales really well, two to five players. There is a bit of wiggle room tactically on what you're trying to do. Everyone gets their own individual Lord of Waterdeep at the beginning, which guides their strategy somewhat. It suggests types of quests that are going to be better for them. And, you know, if, if I've got one that likes Arcana quests, for example, I'm going to want to get buildings out into the city that produce wizards because the more wizards in the game, the less likely I am to get screwed and not be able to get any and therefore not do the quest that I want to do. So there is that interaction as well where you're looking and seeing what's everyone else collecting. Oh, he keeps on going after warriors, so I'm guessing he's after some warfare quests. You know, maybe I'll bury some warfare quests or maybe I won't build this building that puts warriors in the game because it will help him. I'll build this one instead. You know, I like it. It's... There's also cards you can play on each other, which interact. You can either help each other or hinder each other. They're not massive. Everything's fairly, you know, lightweight here. Nothing's really going to screw each other over. Unlike a game coming up, which is often described as Lord of Waterdeep on steroids. This is the other version. This is the nice entry-level, gateway, family, whatever you want to call it, casual level. But there is thought to it. There are ways of playing well and badly. It's not determined by random. You know, a lot of 60-minute games we call gateway games are just random. It's just, anyone could have won that. This requires some thought. I really think it's a solid, well-put-together game that does exactly what it sets out to do, fulfills its remit as well as it could. Sean, Lords of Waterdeep, friend or foe? Absolute friend. What's not to like? It's, in my opinion, one of the best work placement games out there in that it's a worker placement and it's one of the best games it doesn't do anything new at all it doesn't bring anything massively new to the table it just does everything well it's a great game and you have the bonus of the D theme tacked onto it for good measure and i'm totally with you in the in that warriors are warriors and clerics are clerics that you shouldn't be called orange and white cubes that's why I bought the D&D Deeples, which just adds to that little tiny bit to the game. But I'm all about pimping up the game. So for me, I think it's one of my favourite games in my collection. I absolutely love this game. My wife loves it. It's one of the games that just comes out again and again and again. We don't think too deeply into it. As Rona said, it's an hour game. That's all it is. If you want to play a more in-depth game, pick a more in-depth game. This is not going to adapt itself to what you want. You pick the game you need to pick. And this is perfect for an hour. Absolutely perfect. There's not many games that I enjoy more for an hour out there. Yeah, I agree. Lords of Waterdeep, I don't get the hate. I don't know why some people say it's awful. There is nothing awful about this game. 
craziness. My number four for the year, I reckon for sure, and it could even be even higher than that. Lords of Waterdeep. Moving on to the top three. Now, who'd have thought a game that you could play in five minutes would be in my top three? Maybe if you listened to this top 20 and heard some of my odd choices, you might have thought that. But this is the big, quick game that came out last year. It's Love Letter. I'm sure I've gone out on about it enough on this podcast to everyone to know that I just think it's brilliant. It's from uh, Seiji Kanai. It's published by, well, the one you can get hold of mostly is by AEG. It's for two to four players. It says playing time's 20 minutes. You play it as long as you want to play it, to be honest. You can play it in the 10 minutes or you can play game after game after game after game of it for several hours because it is that good. It's a deck of 16 cards which are split into eight different roles. You're going to have one card in your hand. You're going to draw a card and of your two cards you have, you're going to play one. The eight different roles all have various powers and they got a chance of knocking other players out of the particular round of the game you're playing, or possibly even knocking yourself out if you get really screwed. That's okay, because a round lasts about two or three minutes. At the end of the round, whoever's left in, whoever's got the highest value card, wins that round. You can choose how many points you play to. That's why it can be so quick or a bit longer. It's based on the Tempest theme again. So here's me going about the Tempest theme, and yet two of the games in it have made my top 20 of the year. Sean, it's a perfect five-minute game. It's creates really funny moments the more you know the game the more fun you have with it the funnier it gets the more you can see certain situations if you play with a group you get to learn again certain things about them the way they play you start to double guess them start to bluff each other out it just creates moments it's it's just you know it's not necessarily a person winning at the moment it can be just a play of a card or someone getting screwed with the same draw three games in a row and everyone's laughing it's easy to pick up you can play it with kids or adults i've played it with serious gamers light gamers i've taught it to so many people love letter it's such a great game in such a small package sean i don't have the love for this that you do but certainly the more i play it the more into it i get I think when we reviewed this, I likened it to Snap. And although I, I, my sanity was questioned by more than a few people on that one, I didn't say that it was the same game as Snap. I just felt that I had the same amount of fun. I didn't think that there was any more fun than a simple game of cards. But I'm starting to see the depths in this. It, it's not a massively deep game, but there's more to it than I originally thought. But still, it's not a game that I would even have in my top 15. It might creep into the top 20. I think three for me is way, way, way too high. But I haven't played it the amount that you have. And it's definitely a grower for me. I mean, I fell in love with it straight away. I mean, lots of people have played it around me. They've gone about how good it was. I hadn't got around to it. Someone said, you want to play it? First game, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I just... I cannot think of a better game in that time span. I'm not sure it's possible. It's brilliant. My number three for 2012, Love Letter. We're on to the top two, Sean. And oh, people yeah. who have been listening carefully to our podcast might have been able to work out what these two are. And these two have just gone backwards and forwards in my ratings. Just Every player seems to change it backwards and forwards between the two of them. They're both in my top ten games, just about in my top ten games of all time. And they have been swapping position recently. One of them's had an expansion recently, and I think that's pushed it into number one. So, the number two, at the moment, and for posterity, apparently, uh, for 2012, is 
Yido from Thomas van der Ginster and Wolf Planker and published by Pegasus Spieler. Two to five players. This is the game. Uh, we've covered it. Mentioned it so many times. I think I mentioned it every episode. It is the Lords of Waterdeep on steroids reference I made earlier. It's a worker placement. It's very similar in that you're attempting to do missions with your bunch of disciples or ninjas rather than quests with your bunch of adventurers in Lords of Waterdeep. You are placing workers onto a board which represents a city. There are different areas of the board which are going to give you different powers. There's more to it than Lords of Waterdeep though. There's a very important auction mechanic at the beginning. There's much more of building up a set of resources to fit the missions you're going to attempt to do there's much more interaction it's a much tighter game it's much more every single action you take matters every action the other players take might matter because if you get blocked out it can be really frustrating the economics is much tighter you have to have money to do anything in this game if you run out of money you're in real real trouble the ability to get money other than by completing missions is very limited and the only way to get the stuff to complete missions is to have money. It feels thematically... I think it feels thematically okay. Lots of people just don't think there's any theme in it at all. Whatever. I, th I think it helps the theme. When I was drawing up the pluses and minuses for this game... Uh, it's a very long game, by the way. I mean, If you're sitting down to it, give yourself three and a half hours. You might get it done quicker. I've got it done in just over two, but that was with experienced players and, and playing very quickly. Give yourself plenty of time. Some games have taken over five hours. I was saying, when I when I sat down to write the negatives, I wrote that it's um, it's frustrating, it's annoying, it's long, it's prone to analysis paralysis, there's a hell of a lot of conflict in it, it's puzzling, it hurts your brain, that for a game that requires such tight and careful planning through necessity that are, there is some randomness in it but when that randomness hurts you it's really 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 painful it's bitter it's so annoying i played it last night and i turfed my cards on the board at one point in it pure hissy fit which has been described as throwing my toys out of the pram which i had to agree with and then i looked at the positives and it's pretty much a list of exactly the same thing <laughs> It's frustrating, but in a brilliant way. It's frustrating because generally you get frustrated with yourself because you shouldn't be that hard to be able to plan what you're doing, but it is, and you will make mistakes, and you will just go, why have I done that? And you will have three workers to place, and place one, and then immediately realise you've just screwed your whole turn. How how did you, you knew that wasn't where you wanted to go? It's really annoying. It's annoying when other people do stuff. It's annoying when things happen to you. But that creates a challenge. You you feel like the game's kicking you, so you want to come back and kick it back. You want oh, let's have it. Let's, let's have a fight, me and Yido. Come on, Thomas and Wolf. Let's just go at this. The conflict it feels a bit too nasty for this depth of a euro, and yet it's so funny. It's just brilliant. It makes the game, the fact that you can screw each other, because it's not massive screwage, it's just little increments, but little increments in this game can make a huge difference. Someone can screw you over, and it can just, oh, hurt so much. It's puzzling. There is a puzzle there. What's the most efficient way for me to do what I need to do? And it's difficult, because it's a puzzle with lots of moving parts going on. It's brain hurting in a fantastic way. It is a brilliant, brilliant game. It looks lovely. It plays fantastically. 
I wouldn't say that you're going to sit there with people with smiles on their faces during the course of the hours of this game. They're more likely to be wincing, holding their head in their hands, grinding their teeth, giving each other evils. But generally, when you finish it, everyone goes, that was brilliant. Can we play it again? It is certainly becoming a creeper, creeper, creeper hit in my gaming circles. I think it started off, I was the only person with a copy there's probably half a dozen copies maybe at London on board now amongst the kind of you know regular gamers it's coming out in the next week or two in the UK in wider release i'm sure it's going to be a hit sean yeah just to echo what you've said really this is a great headache giving ire inducing stress building emotional game where you're going to call everybody for every name under the sun and then, as Roland said, you're going to chat about what a great game you've had straight away after it. It's it's a real gamer's game. I've said that before about, I think it was Manhattan Project. But it's a real, real gamer's game. And in the review that we did about it, the discussion we did about it before, Roland quibbled about some of the catch-up mechanisms. So I think that's probably only the only negative. And even the designers have come out and said that, yeah, probably not the best thing in there. So take them out. They've advised people to take them out, and with them gone, I think it's one of the best games you can play at the moment. It's a fantastic game, and just try not to kill each other while you're playing it. Yeah, it's painfully wonderful. Uh, do you know what? I think my blood pressure levels are still elevated after last night's play. Someone's inadvertent move cost me 21 points, which is unbelievable. You wouldn't think you'd be able to score that in one move, but I could. I had bonus cards and all sorts linked up to what I was going to do. <laughs> it was Let horrific. It go. Mate, I'd done everything. I had it all lined up. I was first player. I, I, I had the money. It was all there. And the last annex got bought. It was a crazy move for 11 money. No one does that. No. Why? You've taken off your calm trousers again, haven't you? They've gone! I've, I've stabbed them with shuriken. It's like, oh, I'm just, honestly, I don't know I'm ever going to get over that. And the fact that everyone laughed about it, and now people are spreading the story online. This is ridiculous. The time Ronan threw his cards over the Edo board in frustration. Given oh, I ended up on something like 28 points, and I would have scored 21 with that one move on one by miles. Anyway, I need to get over it. That was Yido, my number two for the year. So, my number one for the year. Careful listeners will realise it's a game I absolutely love and I haven't mentioned yet. And in fact, we both love it. I'm pretty certain it's Spartacus, A Game of Blood and Treachery by Aaron Dill, John Kowaleski, Sean Swigart from Gale Force 9. Two, uh, three to four players, rather. Actually, now the expansion's out. Um, it's three to six players. And the playing time's 150 minutes. That playing time is widely variable uh, it depends on how many players are playing and whether you pay the short medium or long game i'll talk about that in a sec but i reckon playing time here is 90 minutes up to seven hours if you go six player in fact six player long game i reckon you could be there for two days and I'm, that's not a joke i really think you could play it for that long wow this game if someone well someone did tell me there was a game coming out about a tv show that i'd never seen that was based on Spartacus, which I heard was trashy, from brand new designers from a company that never published a game before. I know I've said all this before, but come on. Who thought this was going to be a good game? Who could possibly have imagined that this was going to be my favourite game of the year? 
unbelievable. This is a real left field, come out of nowhere, fan-bloody-tastic game. It is the best framework for screwage interaction in a game I have ever found. It is built to cause people to not like each other. Only there are so many times that you're getting screwed over that you forget about the last time someone screwed you and you just start concentrating about this time. As long as you're a normal human being, some sociopaths hold grudges. It's just constant. It's constant. Everything. It's practically the whole game is is simultaneous. So everyone's playing at the same time and when the bits that aren't simultaneous, anyone can screw with anyone else anyway. The only time there's any downtime at all is when there's a fight, when there's going to be two or now with the expansion sometimes four people involved out of however many are playing. And and even then, you've probably put a bet on it. So what happens matters to you because money's very important in the game. It, it's got this framework of interaction which is wide, wide open. It almost lets you do anything. And in doing so... The way that the gentle hand of the mechanics guides you to behave, having now seen some of the first series, this is a work of thematic genius. If you're going to tell me someone's going to design a game that was going to make people behave the same way that those people behave in Sparkus the TV show, those awful, double-crossing, betraying, morally void idiots that you love to watch... You're going to get normal people to behave like that in the game. I'd be like, how? How are you going to do it? Well, here you go. Crack Spartacus out. It will turn you into a complete so-and-so before you even know it. It's it's a game that... Oh, God, it's hard to describe. You're attempting to score points, all right? Now, be it in the short, medium, or long version, you're trying to get 12 points. The version die depends on what number of points you start on. So if I'm playing a four-player game now, the short version from seven points to 12, we're done in under 90 minutes. Incredibly, in a six-player game, in that short version, to go from seven to 12 points, three, three and a half hours is the short version. Um, I've done medium games. You're talking, give yourself, for four players, four or five hours. The long game we tried, we stopped after four and a half hours, I think, and went and played Werewolves because we started a bit too late at night. And, in fact, I'm not sure I like the long game that much because these there's ways of sacrificing points in the game and if you're playing the long game it feels easy to sacrifice points because you're so far away from winning you're like oh I'll catch them up later so the game can stall a bit I'm not sure the long game works that well but I'd, I'd have to give it another try if I ever have the patience to um, it's a game you cannot win early okay you cannot it takes a while to build up it takes a while to get there it takes a while to be poised to move because there always seems to be counteractions to actions so whatever you do early on someone can drag you back but I think you can lose it early. If you don't defend yourself, if you don't build up, if you don't get a decent gladiator to take part in the fight, so you're just going to get picked on. It's going to be very hard to score points. When I saw the expansion, I love some of the things they were putting in, but the addition of two extra players, I said there's a lot of the game is, is simultaneous, so you think that would be so bad, but in lots of games, when you add players, I just think you're just doing that as a, a lazy expansion thing. Wow. Six players in this is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant because it ups the possibilities for interaction. The game's all about interaction. Therefore, it just makes it better. It certainly makes it slower. There's a lot more screwage can take place with that many people. Sean and I had a fantastic six-player game a couple of weeks ago uh, 
which was just brilliant. The screwage going on was mind-bending. People making deals and just blatantly double-crossing each other and not caring because if I piss you two off, there's still three other people that I can make friends with. It actually opens it up to more of this. It's thematic. It's funny. creates fantastic gaming moments. It builds to a climax. It's difficult to see a version whereby there's not lots of people scrapping for that win. Again, that became better with six players. There was more people in with a shell. There was more of a balance. It might have become a little bit too much, Kenny, with six. That's my only thought is that, does it balance too much? Is there too much opportunity for everyone to to, to haul each other till everyone's kind of on 11 and poised to go? It's actually a lot of fun that way. I'm not complaining, but it does take away some of the, the best player wins. It becomes more... Uh, who who was able to be the snake in the grass for long enough that everyone else has wasted their fangs and then bang, you strike at the right time. Uh, mechanically, it's it's a pretty shallow game. I almost feel like we've broken it with some of our plays and the way we've played. You know, people just handing over ridiculous amounts of gold just to stop someone else from winning. But that doesn't make it a broken game. It, it, it just makes it a brilliant gaming experience. It's really group dependent. I have to say that if you can get six people who are willing to screw each other over and be ruthless, um, but do it in such a way that they're subtle and political about it and conniving, fantastic. Pick the five people you think will make the best Roman senators and play it with them. You're going to have a good time. Um, There is a problem that you can run away in combat. The game can stall. House rule, run away in combat three three turns in a row. You get punched by everyone else. It's certainly not for some gamers. It is not for your AP planners, deep UOEs who want to be able to be efficient and build up engines and know exactly what's going to happen. This is the opposite of that game. This is the game of mayhem, murder, treachery, nastiness. Sounds like you, Sean. What do you think, Spartacus? Uh, It's not just a game, though, is it? It's an experience. It's just one of the best group experiences around. And as you said, if you play with the right people, you just might have one of the gaming highlights of your gaming life. We're going to remember that game with the six of us all stitching each other up, all doing it subtly, all smiles on our faces as we stab each other in the back. We're going to remember that game for a long time. It's just a wonderful, wonderful game. It's a dirty, nasty, exhilarating coming together of scoundrels. And the more I play it, the more I really, really regret not putting it into the game pit vault when we had our vault episode. It's that good. It's just such a wonderful experience. And the scope of the game you, I mean, you've, you've already gone through all this, but the scope of the game, just to. You can make a deal any time, at any stage. You can just say to somebody, listen, if you have this type of card or if you don't bid for that or we need to stop him doing this and I'll give you that if you give me this. And nothing is binding, but you can make these deals and you don't have to stick to it. I think the best thing in the whole rule book is that disclaimer where it says something along the lines of, this game's all about screwing each other over, but remember that these people are your friends and you have to be able to talk to them the next day. Yeah. I think, And I think with the right people, not taking it personally. I don't think 
in any game I've played, I don't think, I think there's been a case times when you're just like, oh, I can't believe you've done that to me. You utter so-and-so. But I think you spend so much time laughing, even when it's done to you, that it does completely capture the humour in the Spartacus programmes. Everything's tongue-in-cheek in the Spartacus programmes and the the characters are in it are almost comic book in just their absolute extravagance. And I think that's the way people play it and that's the way the game makes you play it. And that's what I love about it. It's just such a fun, funny, exhilarating game. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's completely an experience. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, that particular game we had was amazing. And then I had a, another six-player game of it, which is almost as good. Not quite. Almost, and I couldn't believe it. I thought we just had like the perfect storm of six players, and then it worked again. We had the ridiculous situation of a guy sitting on 11 points about to win host because he had 27 gold. So, three of us clubbed together to make sure one person has 28 gold, and then the person who had the 27 gold giving 19 of his gold to someone else so they can have 29 gold and win the and you're just like what is happening what the hell we have gone beyond sanity here we've just got to the point where we're so busy screwing each other that it's just madness of course that ended up being the uh, the last the last round because someone was going to win when that lunacy's going on and i think in that round four of us hit 12 points and got pulled back before someone else went on and won brilliant and uh, you know, how funny was it in the game we played where we had the Primus, which is where there's just four people fighting, and that guy makes deals with you not to win because the other person on his team was leading at the time, and then just turned around and laughed at you and won anyway. And he literally laughed at you as he was doing it. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think we all just laughed with him because you kind of half expect it anyway. It's, it's almost when someone actually follows through and does something that they agreed to, that's when you go, oh. Because you're just wait, waiting to be screwed over all the time. And it is hilarious when people do it. And it's almost like you've got a Batiata sitting at the other end of the table just calling you for all the names and laughing in your face as they twist the knife. But, yeah, what a great game. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think when we did the vault episode, I hadn't actually watched any episodes. Uh, I started watching it. And do you know what? It does actually add a little bit to the game to uh, to know the characters because thematically they make sense is you're like oh yeah that's that person oh yeah you know like is it asher the slave the the, the conniving one that's correct yeah yeah that's right yeah, yeah and in the expansion he's his character is both conniving and treacherous and he can change sides in a primus now i haven't got to the bit yet but i can see where this is going all right or you know varro who, who wins money on certain things happening in the game or what have you it's it's hilarious it's very funny so i mean that's that's the top 20 just a quick thing to say with Spartacus, if ever they, you know, they took this license and made a fantastic game out of it. I'm hearing we talked about it previously as well on the, on the treasure hunt. I'm hearing so much negativity about the Firefly game that these guys are designing. This is such a good game. I have so much faith in that Firefly game being fantastic. I am so excited about it. They did such a good job on. Let's be honest, it kind of is and it isn't a great. IP here making a Spartacus game but that Firefly surely that's going to be a fantastic game they've definitely hit the ground running with Spartacus and 
you know what? Even if Firefly isn't, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt until we see it. You can't judge a game before you've played it. Let's just give them a chance to show what they can do. They've already produced an amazing game, absolutely amazing game, like nothing else out there. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I'm looking forward to it to see what it's like. So that was Top 20 from 2012. Uh, as from me, Ronan, with all of Sean's comments and thoughts. So just go a quick rundown of the top 20. Number 20 was Timeline, 19 Keyflower, 18 Rolling Freight, 17 Shadow Magic, 16 Descent 2nd Edition, 15 Kakalak and Poker Royal, 14 Card City, 13 Dominare, 12 D-Day Dice, 11 Legendary, 10 Resistance Avalon, 9 Kemet, 8 Dungeon Command, 7 Manhattan Project, 6 Clash of Cultures, 5 Escape, Four Lords of Waterdeep, three was Love Letter, two Yido, and number one Spartacus. So there you go, that's Ronan's top twenty from twenty twelve. This is now up on Board Game Geek under Ronan's Board Game Geek name, which is Furry Barry. Please feel free to come in, have a chat, tell us what you think about Ronan's choices, see if you agree with me on anything, or if you disagree with Ronan. And thank you for listening to episode 11 of The Game Pit. You can follow us on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast, or if you want to send us an email, we are thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to find all of our back episodes, you will find them alongside more video, audio and written gaming goodness at 2d6.org. Theme by Eve.